0: Recently, I did something I've not done in quite a long time. I hit play and listened to the start of one of my episodes. I've really not done that in a long time. But um, what I noticed was, my show kicks off pretty quickly. Um, The musical intro is over in seconds, and I think that's not really the norm in uh, the world of podcasts. And I think that's a decent reflection of the book, or not the book, sorry, the short story or maybe novella that we'll be looking at in this episode of the show. It's The Wandering Earth by Liu Cixin and it, from what I remember, basically starts us off in media res, I believe is the pretentious term for after the story has already begun. Um, The Earth is on its journey away from our solar system to somewhere else to escape an exploding sun. So you know, no no big deal, just a small sort of realistic little social drama by Mr Liu Cixin. On that Earth, one interesting topic that he does dig into a bit, uh, which the movie adaptation did also dig into in a quite different way, is um, internationalism. This is one of my hang-ups over Bill's work, actually. If you've been listening to this show religiously, I think you'll have noticed that. It's interesting to see where he does and doesn't think about cultures, or people, or nations, or geographic regions coming together or not, and the ways that they interact. And that's sort of an appropriate theme to dwell on in this episode because the show guest I've got on is Jairo Morales, who's Peruvian, and he reads books mostly in Spanish, and he's a little bit like me. He's one of these online book second or what do you call the second order. So he talks of, talks about books in podcast form on YouTube and so on. He's also a writer as well, he writes his own stories, but he'll be appearing on this show in basically uh, the role of the, what would you call it, the the fiction influencer, the, the internet literary critic, whatever. He, me and him are going to be talking about The Wandering Earth, a book or a short story, I should say, sorry, or novella, I should say, that we both really enjoyed, but one really interesting angle that we look at it at is like literary transmission, because he's reading the thing in Chinese-to-Spanish translation. I'm reading it in a Chinese-to-English translation, and at various points we're musing about um, what the Chinese original version might be like, but also what Chinese uh, literature gets transmitted to our own regions of the world, number one, and uh, languages. Because, of course, Spanish, that's an interesting one. You have Spain, where the language came from, and then the other side of an ocean, you have all these, well, a continent, obviously, Central and South America. All these Spanish-speaking nations. And, you know, there's a whole other thing we didn't get into that could be interesting – transnational languages. Because, of course, Chinese is pretty transnational, thanks to the diaspora, but it's many different forms of Chinese, which aren't always mutually intelligible. Uh, Spanish, I guess, is a lot more mutually intelligible. But we do- <laughs> I don't know why I'm talking about that here in the intro, because we don't talk about that in the episode. But it's just another another of the multifarious angles you could take conversations like this. And I promise you, In my chat with Hyrule, we we go to places like that. I've been talking for three and a half minutes now, so I really need to get on to the next item, the Trojific News. So where we talk about just things that are going on in the world of uh, Chinese fiction, or at least translated Chinese fiction. So I got four news items for you today. Let's just go right on to the first one. It's a book review, and guess what? It's to do with Chinese sci-fi, my biggest hang-up of them all. So this is um, a review by, I think, uh, a listener of the show, Virginia L. Kahn, who um, studies... What is her focus? She's very interested in Chinese sci fi, but her academic focus is oh, great, it's on her bio on this page um, depictions of the new socialist human in socialist science fiction and how those depictions guided policy decisions in Mao era China, Soviet Russia, and East Germany. And I think she's somewhat sympathetic to those old school red visions, uh, although I'm sure as a good academic, she'll be critical too. But I think that uh, lefty critical stance informs her review of the book in question, AI 2041, a co author by Mr. Kaifu Li and Chen Xiu Fan. <clears throat> so, a businessman working in the business of AI in Beijing, that's Kaifu, and a Chinese sci-fi author who's interested in basically all things futurism, uh, sometimes sometimes from an optimistic point of view, but in his fiction it's often been, at least in stuff I read in English translation, chaotic and a little bit um, catastrophic. Not So, uh, in the sense that Anticipations of catastrophe, dislocation, uh, ennui, chaos. Uh, that's how I would talk about Chen Chofan. But in this book, um, I'll, I'll try and summarize this book review. Basically, Virginia, uh, or professor, doctor, whatever, um, Virginia alcon um, is critical of this uncritical stance that I think Chofan, Chen Chofan's stories and Kai Fu Li's essays. The uncritical stance they have towards AI and what it could do for the human race. I have not read the book, but from what I gather from this, uh, sorry, from what I gather from this review, it's generally uncritical or positive towards what AI could do for humanity. And I guess one could say pretty easily look, fiction and sci-fi shouldn't just be cheering cheering on the arrival of new technologies. I'm sympathetic to that, but I also think it's I think. My take on this problem, perceived problem in the book, would be like Kai Lee is the problem. Not to say he's a bad guy um, or that he has problematic views, but like if he's in the business of AI, like it's just sort of baked in that the book isn't going to, or is likely not going to kill the kill the industry in its cradle. Um, and if we're concerned that AI has worrying tendencies so like gathering data on us in the name of capitalism rather in the name of than in rather than in the name of like human welfare well that's unfortunately that's the world we live in so no one asked for my hot take here but um my my take on the problem that Virginia is highlighting in the review is I don't really find it surprising that this is the stance the book takes to where the AI industry might be taking the world because, it's, it's an industry run by businesses. This is what businesses do. Perhaps it would have been more interesting to see a sort of dueling approach where Fu Lee the businessman and Chen Chou Fan the speculative fiction writer are like the optimist and the pessimist for sci-fi. But like to me that would be an upsetting uh, binary because I wouldn't want sci-fi offer or just creative people to be the sort of anti-technological progress people. and. So like the ideal in my mind would be the Mr. AI CEO entrepreneur having an ambivalent approach to the AI future he's ushering in and then the author having a similarly similarly ambivalent approach. But I think basically we don't live in that perfect world where um, business uh, critiques itself properly. Uh, it's basically the job of our politicians to to rein these people in. And right now we live in an age where the Silicon Valleys of the world, be it the actual Silicon Valley, or Sun, Beijing's Silicon Valley, they, they don't rein themselves in. They're in the business of destroying whatever reins might be on them. I mean, maybe I'm talking crap here. Maybe Sun is properly regulated. But I think, basically, I would have loved to see the book, I guess, Virginia wanted to see. But, yeah, not not in this life, unfortunately. Next news item. This is more cheerful. Or, or at least I have nothing negative to say about this one. Funnily enough, because uh, a little bit like Kaifu Lee and the AI business, this is something I was involved in. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna throw mud at it. It was the Spotlight Taiwan, uh, reading Taiwan, contemporary literature and a film in a global context symposium run by the Leeds Cent- Center for New Chinese Writing. So again, uh, religious listeners of the show will know that I attended something a bit like this. God, before before COVID, um, in Leeds. It was was a genre fiction symposium. Well, I've been to something similar, but this one was about Lit from Taiwan. And I am going to do a Patreon episode talking all about my experience there. Suffice to say, it was really, really fun. Um, Met lots of incredible people. And it, a lot of it was held online as Zoom events, which were saved, like recorded and saved. So I think the ladies who run the Lead Centre, Francis and Sarah, Are planning to put those online, I guess, up onto YouTube. So I'm going to keep my eyes open for those and if they do go up onto YouTube then I'll make sure to include them in a future and use item for you guys, the listeners. Uh, There is um, a program of the event that I will link to in the show notes. Uh, That will just show you what went down. There won't be a great deal of like content for there for you to consume but there will be a lot of interesting people from either Taiwanese literature itself or studies and discussion of it. So yeah, you can check it out. Okay, um, second to last news item. This is an interview uh, with a Hong Kong author. It's been translated to English and is available in the original Chinese as well. It's an interview with Dorothy Tse, an author I've not covered on the show yet, but whose books, or sorry, at least a couple of her books are available in English translation. So a person you could check out even if you don't read Chinese. Uh, this interview is pretty short but not mega short either. Lots of interesting questions, a dozen of them in fact. And it's available, or sorry, it was um, created and posted by the Sinophone HKKH, the Sinophone Hong Kong Literature Translation Anthologies. And they actually have uh, several of these interviews with quite a lot of um, interesting people. There's Chris Song is in there. He is an academic I believe I've read a book he co-authored. He's got all sorts of, at least that book I read, had um, all sorts of interesting angles on culture of various forms coming out of the mainland. So there will be a link to that in the show notes as well if you want to check it out. Okay, last news item. It's more sci-fi. I'm massively excited about this one. This is, this is a big deal, guys. Um, It's an announcement by Amazon Crossing, who are Amazon Publishing's imprint of um, translated fiction, basically, and whoever they've got a really great Chinese uh, selection. Uh, they are going to be publishing, they have announced this via a tweet, they're going to be publishing a trilogy, the hospital trilogy, by the mainland author. Hansong. So the trilogy uh, go the, the three books of the trilogy go by the names Hospital, Exorcism, and Dead Souls. Dead Souls. That's a that's a particularly um, cool one because I'm pretty sure there is a Dead Souls by Nikolai Gogol. Let me check that right now. Dead Souls. Yeah, that is a Nikolai Gogol book or story. Yeah, novel. And that interests me because Lu Shun's book Diary of a Madman shares a name with a Nikolai Gogol book. I'm pretty sure. Diary. I'm um, again, I'm Googling this. Diary of a Mad Man. Uh, there's also a Ozzy Barn album with the same name. Yeah, it's a Nikolai Gogol short story as well as a Lushun short story, so I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm missing the point here, which is that my favorite Chinese sci-fi author is getting three novels, which are a trilogy, translated into English and made available through Amazon Publishing, which means it should be very widely available. Now, there's going to be a long wait for these. These are coming out in January 2023, so I guess Michael Berry, who is going to be the translator, probably hasn't translated them all yet, or Perhaps he's almost done, but of course, publishing translated fiction, that is a long, long and um, fiddly process, as publishing any book is, but translation, you've got that extra level or two of complication. Uh, We can say as well about the translator, he's an interesting dude, because he's an academic. So it's interesting that he's the fellow that's been picked for uh, Hansong, because I wasn't aware he'd sort of stepped into the ring of Chinese sci-fi in academia or translation so to speak but he he's done it now because he's also going to be uh, or, or possibly already has by this point doing a talk an interview with C- session Leo on the Wandering Earth, funnily enough, which this this very episode that you're in right now is on. So I'm going to need to message. I'm going to have to slide into Michael Berry's DMs. He's a he's a professor of Chinese Lit and Film and the director of the Center for Chinese Studies at UCLA, the University of California, Los Angeles. He's he's entered my radar, I'm gonna to have to enter his. On that note, 15 whole minutes, at least pre-editing, 15 whole minutes into the show. That is the end of the Church of Fake News. So I will shut up now and you guys can hear my chat with Jairo Jairo Morales about The Wandering Earth. We are on the show with Jairo Morales. Hi Jairo, how are you doing and what have you been up to?
1: Hello, I I am fine actually. It's right now for um you know people hearing us it's i am in the other side of the planet it's 7 a.m in the morning and yeah i am i am doing good i am in my second cup of coffee right now
0: i'm impressed you can start so early to be honest i couldn't do that
1: i am a morning person no i (laughs) really love uh, waking up early
0: there was one episode i did way back with a i think he's a chinese american translator and i don't know how the time differences worked i think I know I don't know, but we were both drinking a gin and tonic uh, just by chance. We didn't plan it, but we're both drinking a gin and tonic as we talked. So I made sure this time to make my own coffee, although it's 1 p.m. here, so I don't really need it as much as you do, but I thought it would be a fun thing to do.
1: You know, um, drinking gin and tonic in the morning is also good. (laughs) That's true.
0: Yeah, I might have done that at least once in my life. Um, So the listeners might be wondering... you are so can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do uh, relating to literature especially
1: sure um i right now i'm living in lima in peru um honestly my my profession is i work in advertisement i have been working in advertisement for about uh, 10 years right now and but i really love books i have always loved science fiction and fantasy books i have always been reading them and right now I am working, well, I have a, a podcast, a, a literature podcast, where I, I talk about not only books, but uh, we also talk about writing itself. I also write. I, I, I love writing, you know, Um, and I have and I have this podcast called El Rincón del Escritor. And maybe the translation in English should be Writer's Corner. Right. And we talk about, uh you know, a lot of writing, Um. You know every every everything about writing, uh, about uh, writer's block and how to avoid it and all that stuff. And I also talk about um, books in videos. And I, 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 maybe I can say that I am a content creator. That's it. I I make videos for Instagram Reels and TikTok. And you know the pandemic made me do all that stuff because I had a lot of time in my hands. And I started, you know, recording videos, talking about books, recording podcasts, and and writing, writing stories. And that's who I am in the literature world.
0: Yeah, I, I can relate to what you said about the pandemic. So I started this show when I was on a master's. Mm-hmm. So I had a reasonable amount of time to um, to work on it because my stud- well, it was a full-time study, but I still had a bit of time to do some part-time work and the show without going crazy. Then when my dissertation started... I had to leave it alone and when i uh not so not there was a very short window between finishing that masters and working sort of freelance from home where i was able to keep the show going reasonably well mm-hmm. not so long after that the pandemic hit and although i was working when i wasn't working i was doing nothing so it was a, a good time for the sh- for my show as well and yeah i want to say as well um the fact we're doing neosession and that you yourself are a fan of literature in general and you're not uh china literature focused academic mm-hmm. or translator i don't think it's too much of a coincidence because i found on this show it can be very hard to get people who want to be guests to talk with lots of enthusiasm about a book if they don't have some specific connection to academia or or, or chinese lit in some way but with liotishin i've had no problem with that at all um my last guest in my last episode about a liotishin book he was a an american guy who just loves like i guess geek culture. And I think oh. three bodies, the only, aside from maybe some Kung Fu movies, I think three body was, his, the three body problem was his only contact with popular Chinese culture, but he was able to talk about it with me for like almost three hours. So there's something about Liu Cixin's journeys in translation that I think makes him special. So it's it's exciting to be talking about him with another reader who is not <laughs> like me and most of my guests sort of pinned to, to China in some way or other. That's great. Um, I guess we can move on to the the, the basics of the story because I think we're going to have a lot to talk about. So better not to um, beat around the bush for too long. I guess the absolute basic of the story here is that th- the sun is about to blow up at some point. Humanity yes. needs a way out. And what they decide to do, um, they use <laughs> a brute force um, plan. They turn the earth into one big great ship powered by rockets leave the sun's orbit, and they're heading for another, I think it's another star where they can reset their orbit and live and continue continue humanity. But the catch is, because of the vast distances of space, this is going to be a multi-generation, <laughs> maybe even multi-century, I don't remember. Plan. Yeah,
1: it's, it's a travel about uh, 2,500 years to Alpha Centauri.
0: There you go. No big deal. Yeah. Just 2,500 years. Yeah. And the story doesn't try to cover that whole time. It just follows the lifespan of one guy. And he witnesses some, I guess, basically a series of horrific events. Uh, just awful yes. things keep happening. It, everything comes to a, to a boiling point and almost goes dreadfully wrong in ways that are kind of interesting to compare with the three-body problem, I think. Maybe we could talk about mm-hmm. that. There's some other things that happen along the way. I'll I'll pause my summary there. Do you think there's any interesting points in the plot that we should explain to the listeners that are really important?
1: Yes, actually, there are two points. The first one is the, the one that I always say when I recommend Shi Liu's uh, work to people, and it's that you you need to be read you need to be ready. For <laughs> the you know uh, the the effect that you will have reading uh, Liu's works because you will feel tiny, you you will feel, uh, you know, um, like your life is really, really short. Mm. And that will make you realize a lot of things and that will depend uh, on the person reading reading the book, you know. Um, but yeah, that's the first thing I always say. When I yep. recommend Cixin Liu's work, and and the second, the second point is that it's it's different. You, you know, I, I have been reading science fiction. Um, you know, it, at least in, in Latin America, the science fiction, the first science fiction that you encounter are you know um, Julio Verne's work. Then, if you keep reading them, you're going to find, uh, for example, Asimov, you know, Ray Bradbury, um, Philip K. Dick, and all those guys. But then, when you read uh, Cixin Liu's you will realize that it's anything. Th- there is no book like that. There is, n- there are no stories la- like that. And it's only with Cixin Liu. it's only it's, um, you know, with Chinese science fiction in general. But that, those are the two points that I always say when I recommend, uh, you know, Liu's works.
0: Out of all the translated Chinese sci-fi I've read, I would agree. Like <laughs> he's, um, he's totally unique. His exactly what you said about kind of. Terrifying feelings about being small. Um, other yes. Chinese sci-fi I've read doesn't have that. There are similar things. There are writers who are not afraid to make things kind of dread-inducing, or there are other writers who do, who, I don't know, it, I feel like some one thing the decision does is there's a lot of things that you can read very easily as a metaphor for like China versus the US or China versus yes. possible colonizing powers. Um, you, I think there is some of that in other Chinese sci-fi, but basically he's, he's unique. I, there's something I I've prepared in advance that relates a lot to what you said about the feelings of, uh, like horror basically, um, or awe, awe and horror together. So I don't think I talked about this on the show before I have a Kindle. So I read a lot of books on my Kindle, this one included, Mm -hmm. and it has a feature where you can highlight text. And when you do that, it actually stores all that highlighted text in a text file. So what I do is I copy that text, I put it in a Google Doc, and I update it every so often. So thankfully, I did that for this one. And I've got a couple quotes from the English translation, because I guess we should underline here. I read the English translation. You read the Spanish translation. And I read the Spanish, yes. And we did not read the Chinese, because my Chinese is not good enough to read stories. And I guess you don't really have any, because we're readers in translation.
1: Yeah, I read them in translation.
0: Yeah. Okay, so this is the English translation. So I'll read um, two parts here. Let me just find the right ones really quickly. So I'm not... Yeah, okay, here's one. It was always a nightmarish scene when the beam of an earth engine cut through dark clouds. The clouds scattered a brilliant bluish white light of the beam, erupting it into countless frenzied surging halos, of rainbow light that covered the entire sky like white-hot magma. One time, my senile grandfather, tormented by the unrelenting heat, couldn't take it anymore. When a heavy downpour started, he was so elated that he ran outside, bare to the waist. And Content warning here, if, you're, um, if anyone's eating, pause eating. We couldn't stop him in time, and the top of his skin was scalded off by the raindrops which, which were heated to a boil by the earth engine's plasma beams. So that was one, and here's the next one. I think this one is, it cuts a bit deeper, um, and it reminds me of how I felt reading some of the three body problem, uh, being aware about those things you mentioned, life's short, and so on. Here, the mouth of the plasma jet was directly above us. The beam emanating from it was so enormous that when we tilted our heads up, all we could see was a gargantuan wall of blue plasma reaching into infinity above us. Looking far up that blue, I then recalled a riddle posed to us in philosophy class. You are walking along a plane when you suddenly come across a wall, I told my teacher. It stretches endlessly upward, endlessly downward, endlessly to your left, and endlessly to your right. What is this wall? Our haggard teacher had asked our class that riddle. I now asked Ms. Xing, curious at her answer. Even the memory of that question made me shudder as we stood atop the engine. Ms. Xing looked at me, thinking of the answer. After a perplexed moment, she shook her head as she contemplated my query. Leaning close, I whispered the riddle's terrible answer into her ear. Death. For a few seconds, she stared at me in silence and then suddenly embraced me. Which is the right thing to do for a kid who's having these messed up thoughts. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's a really good description of how some of Free Body made me think like, shit, I'm going to die one day and there'll be nothing after. <laughs> Ugh, not a nice yeah, thought
1: it, yeah actually you know this is the first time that i hear uh that i listen the, the translation in english and it's it really is the same in spanish you know it's it it, it captures that same aura you know it, it feels the same and now right now i am depressed again but yeah I'm it's a good that. translation no it's okay
0: <laughs> <laughs> um i guess we can move to the next little point is how we came across the story and our first yeah. impressions reading it so i've i've talked about this how, how the first chinese lit i started reading on a lot in this show but basically long story short when i was living in china i mostly wasn't reading chinese lit at all because i was homesick so i was reading western stuff but um i read in the time i lived there i did read three things that were translated from chinese to english one of them was the three body problem and mm-hmm. After I came home, I started devouring translated Chinese stuff because <laughs> I was homesick for China. So that's how I ended up reading this one. Um, but what about yourself? How did you come to The Wandering Earth?
1: Yeah, well, um, before I answer that, I-, I want to ask you, how how big was, uh, you know, Lee's work back there in China? Oh, at yeah, that no, moment?
0: Th- that's a good question. Um, I as far as i'm aware he's still huge over there but um yeah mm-hmm. one great thing about reading three body problem if you're living in china or if you have read it and then go to china is that's something you can talk about with just about anybody chinese who's i don't know um not a really old person so i was there i'm mm-hmm. i'm 28 now i was in my 20s living there and if i mention, oh yeah i read santi San Ti is uh three the three body problem literally just a uh, three body. I said, oh yeah, I read Three Body Problem. I read Santi by Liu Cixin. Have you heard about that? What What do you think about it? And pretty much everyone had either read it or they had an opinion about it. So wow. he's he's huge over there. The question I'm not so sure of, because I've only read uh, these people since leaving China, is how big other sci-fi writers are in China. I, I don't really know. My, my feeling is that Lio Cixin is in like the popular consciousness yes. and culture. And then if you're a fan of sci-fi or Chinese sci-fi, then you might know the other, the other names. So kind of similar to their reception in the English-speaking world. But to mm-hmm. be honest, I don't know. I could be totally wrong. I should really ask some of my Chinese friends about that.
1: Yeah, that would be, be great, actually, because I believe that maybe um, Hao Jingfang Fang is also big over there. Maybe. I am not sure.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. She's widely published. Her and maybe like yeah, some of the older Chinese science fiction authors, maybe Chen Xiu Fan, like I know they have whole novels out and Hao Jing Fan yeah. has like literary fiction books as well, not just sci-fi. And um, I had um, Ken Leo, the big translator of Chinese to English sci-fi on the show to talk about one of her books that came out in translation. And he was very... Um, he made a big point of emphasizing to me that sh- her work that she does is mostly nothing to do with literature. She does work on like, uh, uh, improving problems related to economic equality, work, helping kids, economic okay. planning, stuff like that. So if she's famous for that, I don't know, but maybe, maybe not. But I know certainly if you go on YouTube and on, on the Chinese internet as well, you can find lots of talks she gives. Yeah. So she might be a case where she's also a public intellectual as well as an author.
1: That's great. That's great, actually. Now, um, going back to your question <laughs> about um, how I discovered that this story, well, I have to be honest. With the uh, Wandering Earth, I the first thing I saw was the movie, because mm. here in Netflix, um, it, it made a big deal about it, and in on, in, well, in Twitter, everybody was talking about that. I, I used to follow a lot of um, Spanish people because uh, you know my family lives there. And I know a lot of a bunch of people there, and, and they are all um, working in, in literature. They have bookstores and stuff like that, and they are always talking about science fiction. And they they told me about this movie that was coming to Netflix, and it was based on a story of this Chinese guy called Si Xi Xin Liu. And I was I was thinking, this Chinese guy, this is this the man who wrote it three by problem is going to be amazing. And that's the first thing I saw, you know, that the movie. And then after I saw that, I, I, I said, I have to read this. I I cannot read. I cannot not read this. So I remember, you know, getting up of the sofa and going to the library. This is, we were talking before the pandemic. And I went to the library. One of my favorite libraries in Lima is literally like five blocks away from, from, from my place. And I went there, I catch the book. It was really new. Nobody was talking about this. And I read it, and I my mind was blown. Obviously, as every movie, I realized that the movie, you know, it's just a movie. The story, it, it's another thing. But yeah, that's how I discovered this this story in particular. Because the way I discovered Sichario is really different. Because the first book I, re- I read was The Three Body Problem, mm. and I discovered it because of Barack Obama. Yes, you know, I think it's, a lot of people yes. did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that they they made a really good marketing in, in Latin America with that, and so yeah, that, that's it. That's the way I discovered him. I, I'm sure
0: I've t- said this on the show before, but um, the reason I ran into Three Body was that it was getting like articles written about it in English, and I'm sure Barack yeah. Obama's um involvement there put it in one of his holiday reading lists when he went off to Hawaii, and I'm sure that helped it get into those articles, which helped it get into my. Uh, frame of reference i guess is worth talking about the the reception mm-hmm. of the film because yeah i i read the book maybe like that sorry i read the wandering earth story collection which is uh, how the books of uh, this short story is available in english maybe half a year before the film got its release and what I, from what i remember i saw a lot of buzz leading up to the release of the film but then mm-hmm. Of course I was going to see that because I was desperately consuming any news related to China because I was back home in Scotland and missing (laughs) my old life there. So it seemed like it was getting reported on like the BBC did one or two articles about it and stuff. But then when it got its release in the UK, I don't think it got a cinema release. I know it got some kind of small cinema release in the US, but even that it wasn't in many cinemas, I believe. And when it did arrive on Netflix in the UK, I don't mm-hmm. think it got pushed much in like the into people's feeds or their main screens. So I th- I th- I think the only people I know who've seen the film would be like Chinese friends or people specifically interested in Liu si nationalism. I don't yeah. think I know many like normal people who've, who've seen it who are not who are not Chinese. But I'm also I don't know if you would agree. I thought the film was kind of eh so I'm I think mm-hmm. if it had been a better film it might have blown up a bit more.
1: Well, um, regarding the reception, um, well, you have to know, in Latin America, how can I say this in a gently way? Um, People only tend to see science fiction and fantasy as a, you know, bad literature. If you are talking with, I don't know, with a senior, with with some older person, and you talk about you're reading science fiction, they tend to look at you in a bad way. Because in Latin America, because of the, you know, Latin American boom, uh, with Cortázar, Borges, uh, Vargas Llosa, and, and all those guys uh, back in the 1970s. Uh, people tend to say that literature is big. It's better than science fiction and fantasy. And yeah, I, I grew up in that society. Right now we are in that society. Uh, but I, I realized that, yeah, their books are great, but you know, I I, I enjoy science fiction more. I enjoy fantasy more because we are living in a science fiction world we are currently living in a rock in the middle of the space <laughs> going around the sun below us we have magma and above us there is just a zone that if it goes it will, will just go away but yeah i i honestly well talking about that uh, people doesn't love science fiction a lot in, in this place you know uh, but there are a lot of uh, you know the, the young people right now are embracing these kind of stories again. Uh, you know, we are talking right now in October, and for example, we have the, the big uh, series in Netflix right now is Squid Game. Mm-hmm. And that thing is, uh, well, you know, it's fiction, but the way the story is told, it's making people more aware of this kind of stories. So right now, we are people talking about, we're watching more uh, these kind of science fiction stories, fantasy stories, or uh, because they love this kind of series. But at the reception here, we never had that um, on scenes, uh, on movies. We, we never have The Wandering Earth. We received that on, on Netflix. Hmm. And um, well, yeah, I, I, I know a lot of people in Spain that uh, talked about a movie. I, realized, I, I discovered a movie because of that. Right. But uh, then again, talking about how I enjoyed that movie, well, I honestly liked it because maybe I, I never read a story. Maybe that was it. Because I, I I saw the movie first and I say, you know, I, I, I really, honestly, I never think that there is a bad movie. I never think that because it's always, you know, the director's vision and the, you know, the writer's vision too. And I, I enjoyed the movie, but obviously when I read the story, it was a different story because then I realized, okay, this movie... I don't know. I, I thought that the movie could have gone in other ways, different ways than they showed us. No, but yeah, that's, that's what I think. I, I, I can say that I enjoyed the movie a little bit, you know, that's my reaction actually.
0: Yeah. I'm going to make a mental bookmark to mm-hmm. remember to talk about differences between the the film and the book. Cause Great. I, I think like the, sorry, there's a fly flying around my face. <laughs> Got it. Um, <laughs> I guess the source of the the main crisis—that's like the main part of the plot in the book—is is different in the book and the film. Yeah, and I think that could basically be related to like political sensitivity, censorship. I think it's probably fair to say. But
1: do you think that because because yeah. one of the things, uh, uh, for example, I saw that movie yesterday, so it's really fresh in in my head. Right. And the first thing I noticed that was that the change of the problem. Mm -hmm. And I thought that maybe it was because they wanted to make it a sensitive sensitive movie. But I don't know if Chinese people are that way. I I grew up with a lot of Chinese people here and they, you know, literally like the memes, you know, like their parents, they just don't care and they only want them to study hard. And that's it. So, yeah, I saw saw the movie uh, and I realized that maybe they changed that because of I don't know sensitive things. You say now it's more like to focus on science. Yeah. Um.
0: Yeah. Because if if we think about the the crisis in the um in the in this the original story, I think the the idea is a large group of people stop believing in the mission. They um they think it was wrong to abandon the earth as the sun because the sun was never really going to blow up. Yeah. And they start basically a huge revolt and they they win like they overpowered the authorities and our main character is sort of in a difficult situation because his wife who's a japanese lady again i don't think you'd see that in a chinese film um for reasons i'll get into um yeah you're right yeah he he's sort of caught up is conflicted his side basically loses so the rebels win they're going to overthrow the earth's government and just in the nick of time they see that they are, uh, the sun, I think, has detonated, and the rebels realize they were wrong. And I, so I, I guess I can first mention why I think, and this is reading politics into the story. I know that mm-hmm. Ken Leo, uh, the translator of Three Body, basically says about Chinese sci fi don't do this, don't try and make it all about politics. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that my got reasons for interpreting this way. So if you think of in, in the three body problem, how it opens with the cultural revolution, this um, mm-hmm. huge, uh, how can I say it, upheaval in um, Mao, Mao Zedong's China in like the late sixties through to the seventies. Yeah, That was a very unstable um, time of a kind of rebellion. It's pretty complicated, but basically to sum it up maybe a little bit too quickly, Mao Zedong felt as a leader, his power was slipping a little bit and that the revolution was becoming not like the energy of the revolution was being lost. And he called for like the young people to rise up. The phrase in English is uh, bombard the headquarters and like kind of bring down local or mid-level officials. And what that created in for quite a long time in Chinese society was with these, with these factional battles that you mm-hmm. see at the start of Free Body where people are fighting, there's rebellion. And an interesting thing about modern China is this is the, like quite a lot of awful things happened during Mao's time in charge after the revolution. So there was like famine, yeah. purges against intellectuals and the Cultural Revolution is just one of those. But the only one that the government ever has ever really like um discussed or said de- kind of declared was a, like a mistake was the cultural revolution so in a lot of chinese literature from like the 80s onwards after Mao's death it was big writers were able to write about the cultural revolution and kind of criticize it and not get in trouble mm-hmm. and um although it's still a sensitive topic writers who've kind of are respected enough we're able to write critically about it. But in like more mainstream pop culture, TV, films, I don't think you really see any criticism of it. So there's this thing if you read enough translated Chinese fiction, you can notice this pretty quickly if you compare it with TV and films. Yeah. The literature is less heavily censored than the films because. I think it's because it has a smaller audience. It's not being beamed into people's homes on a screen. So anyway, my, my feeling is that um, the audition was able to write about this very cultural revolution-esque situation in his book, because that's sort of a norm to write about stuff like that um, in literature. But I think the film was intended for like audiences of millions of people. Yeah. And it would have been just very tricky to have this extended sequence of the people <laughs> rising up and attacking the government i think the only time you'll see that in a chinese film is if it's the you know this the civil if it's communist rebels overthrowing the republican government because yes that's the good rebellion that one is okay <laughs> but anything in the present or the future is um it's it's probably not going to pass the censors
1: i i have never uh, well re- reading the wandering earth i i i read that scene but i I didn't make the connection that you say, but talking about this reminds me the beginning of the Three-Body Problem. We have a, a whole chapter talking about a rebellion and how that you know, scene makes the rest of the first book at least. And well, here's a question. It's more like why the government, the Chinese government doesn't think that it's, you know, they are not looking very careful to the literature the Chinese literature right now because as you say there you can talk about it but why why is that?
0: Um well I would say that's like one topic that is okay to discuss. Mm -hmm. Um it's those like political topics that you can discuss are quite limited. That is one. Okay. Another one that has been okay in recent years is corruption at like a more local level Mm -hmm. so it's a really interesting film uh, made by a director who's very good at going right to the edge of what you're allowed to discuss uh the film is called um the english name is i am not madame bovary the mandarin name is wobusha Panjinlian, i think and it follows this woman who lives in the countryside who's cheated by her husband she um like, what do they? They they think they're faking a divorce to get extra licenses to buy houses or something. Mm-hmm. And he uses it as an excuse to say, Oh, I really divorced you and now I'm gonna cheat on you. And she's not happy. So she takes it to the first level local official above her. So like a countryside level guy. And that guy doesn't take her side. I think because she knows her husband. So she goes to the next level up. That guy is corrupt. She goes to the like so from County, its prefecture. Basically, she goes up every level of government trying to get help, and the leaders of those levels are—they're uninterested, they're lazy, or they're corrupt, or they're too useless to help her. So she ends up doing what—it's a real thing in China where every every I think four years, every so many years, there's this big conference in uh, Beijing where loads of lo- loads of officials gather for a big conference. Mm-hmm. And we, in theory, it's a big democratic discussion. I think in practice, they show up and they say, yes, we agree. But in any case, it's a big meeting. <laughs> okay. And a lot of ordinary Chinese people will go there because they've been failed at every level of the government. So they go to the top. They go to the leaders to get some help. And oh, wow. that's a real thing. And this film showed it. And it showed you how corrupt the lower level officials were. But it never said anything bad about anyone right at the top. Because that would be, if you do that, the film's not going to get released, and it will damage okay. your career. And it's interesting because this film came out around the same time that um, the top level of government, I guess the president Xi Jinping, was doing a big anti-corruption push, mm-hmm. um, targeting every level of government, of course except himself. So some of the, a few people at the top got taken down, and then at the lowest levels and the mid levels of government, again like thousands of officials would, were punished. Or fired. So at that time, it was encouraged to talk about corruption at those levels. Okay. but of course, there are certain limits that you just you're in trouble if you go to them. So it's it's an interesting thing. So like to give you an example, in I guess the 50s, there was a huge famine that basically resulted from bad policy choices. And what, what am I trying to say? false reporting of figures. There was a push by the new revolutionary government to mm-hmm. like modernize, uh, collectivize farms, trying to do all these revolutionary things. But long story short, was really badly managed. I guess a lack of common sense and corruption caused huge numbers of starvation and deaths in lots of parts of the country. That's something the government has basically never apologized for, owned up to. All discussion of it will not get published or made into a movie. That's a banned topic. And unless, I guess it would probably only ever become an unbanned topic if the government felt enough time has passed that it was safe to open it up, or if the government changed and became less authoritarian. But I think basically, if it risks a huge outrage against them, mm-hmm. it stays in that list of banned topics. So although it seemed contradictory, the three-body problem was able to show scenes of the cultural yeah. revolution and the terrible effects it had on that uh the character's father but it wouldn't show maybe 10 years earlier where perhaps people they knew were starving
1: yeah i i realized that
0: so that wasn't a very short explanation but mm-hmm. yeah yeah, it's um, it's it's just it's enormously complicated once you get into it.
1: Yeah, I can imagine that because, but but that's a sort of you know topics that you that you tend to talk about when when you read these kind of books, you know, because it makes you talk about that. So that's that's something that I am always um, surprised when I'm reading this kind of uh, fiction, you know, because it it makes us talk about this. It makes us, you know, in Latin America, um, we are always talking about. How different is uh, the the Chinese culture with the rest of the world? Well, not not in America. At least me and you know I'm my girlfriend and and some friends that I have that we that we read uh, this kind of science fiction. It's something that we are always wondering how how amazing is the fact that having China as a you know authoritarian country, but at the same time. Being one of the most advanced in technologies and you know um, SNS social technologies, it's it's really 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 amazing. The, I, I think that the the closest that I got to that um, you know a social network future is when I was in South Korea. There, mm. you know, just like China, they have some two or three apps and everything is connected. Everything is connected. Everything, you know, um, works the same way. And and that's it. The government knows where are you and um, Mm -hmm. what are you doing and what you're watching right now. So that's something that I always, you know, I found really, really um, interesting because I live here in Latin America. We have, you know, it's a democratic country, but we don't have that same technology, that same, you know, advanced technologies that, they have there but that's something that i always found found interesting regarding china regarding everything like that
0: no yeah it's um it's a very interesting comparison here living in the uk which things are easy and seamless here and a headache in china mm-hmm. and first vice versa what's easy to do in china versus what's a headache here um like Oh man, there's so many different examples I could make. One might be like the use of QR codes. So recently, yes, recently yesterday, me and my girlfriend went into uh, Manchester, the big city near mm-hmm. us, and first thing we did went into a cafe to get some coffee, and they had a, a system where they got a little, very like cheap, paper thing standing up that says, for reasons, for COVID reasons, or. I don't know if it was because of COVID reasons, but it looked quite new. Please scan this QR code to get onto the menu, make your order that way. And this was like here in the UK, that's, I guess, brand new or really strange. But years ago in China, that that was the norm in lots of restaurants. Some restaurants would even supply you with a tablet and you could make your order on an app on their tablet. So and like there's a whole payment system. You can buy your food just scanning QRs. uh, But they don't have contactless payment with their bank cards there. Whereas here in the UK, you can, with your phone or your card, you can beep, mm-hmm. make a payment. Um, I guess like trains is another comparison. The Chinese train fast rail system is, um, it's amazing. It's be- much better than the UK's trains. The UK's trains system is, uh, it's divided up by like dozens of different little private companies. It's stupid. It's illogical. <laughs> But sometimes buying a ticket in China can be a bit of a nightmare because you've got to go collect it from a real person. I think it's different if you're a Chinese citizen. Uh, There are some machines you can collect your tickets from. But as as a foreigner, you can't use those machines because they will only accept a Chinese ID card. Like I came across a station that had a machine which had English. Mm -hmm. Uh, They bothered to make an English language setting for it, but there's no way you can scan your, your passport you can only scan a Chinese ID to collect your ticket. Um, So yeah, there are like, there are like, when, when people talk about China as an incredibly advanced country, like in some areas, yes, it's, it's catching up or is ahead of the other most advanced countries, places like Shanghai are future cities, but you also got to remember there are parts of the system, which I, I didn't do a very good job of describing, but some things are mind numbingly backwards and a lot of the country is like still a peasant society, in the yeah. countryside. It's. Um, I don't really know how that would compare with like South Korea or Japan, but I think it's much more of a crazy uh, contrast, almost like time travel going from Shanghai on a train out to the countryside outside Shanghai
1: yeah i, I think it, that's the same at least uh, in the fact that when you leave the capital and you went you go to you know uh, cities in the middle of the country you will always find this kind of difference you will always think that in in that city the future never came <laughs> that sounds poetic but that's that's true actually here in lima we can always say that um um here in the capital um it's really different you know uh and in fact here in in the city we have a lot of people coming from the provinces you know cities in, in the middle of the of the, of the country and it's it really we have a really different variety of cultures here because in peru we have uh, three three different um, regions. We have the coast next to the sea. Then we have the mountains. It's called the Sierra. And then we have the, the jungle, the, the Amazonian rainforest, where I am from. And it's really different. And, and also the food is different and the food is, is better, in my opinion. But sure. um, yeah, it's it, it, that we can see that. And talking about the difference in, in the, the, the different people we have here, I, I can say that I can kind of well you know it it, we have a lot of uh a big chinese community here big one because um in the 20th century uh you know when we had all these kind of revolutions in the country and people were trying to make the country what it is today uh there were a lot of i don't know how do you say this in english Uh, um the caucho, huh, rubber
0: Right, the product
1: the yeah. cheese, right? Yeah, yeah. Um in, in the 10th, 20th century we have this uh, era of of rubber because where um we have a lot of islands where people can you know take that and make some for for you know um for manufactured things and stuff like that. And they began to bring Chinese people to uh, say, you know, um work. For work and, and in the countryside, and that's when they, you know, the, the Chinese um, community began to to grow in, in this in this part of the country. And right now, we had uh, we have a lot. Of, I, I believe that in all countries we have this uh, Chinatown, and because of that, once I read in uh, I don't know if it was an, an essay talking about how Chinese people tend to stay together always everywhere around the world. And that that's something that you can always see in movies when you read books, and and that's one of the things that stay that remains the same wherever you go, you know. And so here here in Lima, uh, we have a lot of Chinese people with you know uh, with stores, with restaurants, Chinese food restaurants, and even even in in I am from Iquitos, an island in the middle of the rainforest in the Amazon, and rainforest in, in, in Peru, and I grew up with a lot of Chinese friends, you know, I, uh, those, their parents were having, you know, Chinese food restaurants, some stores, and they were really great people. That was my first approach with them. So talking about the advance and and, and the way how traditions work, they were my first approach to this mixed to this, you know, uh, talking about the tradition, because we were, for example, in the 90s, we were playing with our Game Boys. And at the same time, we were in, in the table, you know, eating dim sums and talking about <laughs> celebrating the Chinese New Year. Everything was kind of that. And, and yeah, it, it, it's kind of amazing to to see how, how far things are going there. But at the same time, looking how close the country is and sometimes the people too but yeah that's mm. that's something that I that I saw and talking talking about is it reminded me of that
0: even in this little well it's not super small but the little town mm-hmm. I'm in in uh, Cheshire uh, we have like 10 minutes one way down the road there's a Chinese takeaway 15 minutes walking in the opposite direction there's another one so like north and south if I go east on my way to work mm-hmm. I pass another one and the interesting local adaptation that they have here is two of those three uh, Chinese restaurants are also the local fish and chip shop. I don't know if you know about fish and chips in the UK, but like that's the most popular traditional form of takeaway and the best place to get fish and chips in this town, at least in our end of town, is the Chinese takeaway. So, yeah, they're like even I guess even here. Out in almost the middle of nowhere, uh, the diaspora, Chinese diaspora, are mm-hmm. are um, doing their thing. Yeah. What you said about the countryside, actually, several things you said about when describing Peru sound quite similar to to China and Chinese society. Maybe because they have gone through some similar historical stages or development. So, um, yeah, like I was saying about China, if the cities are where the wealth and the development is. If you go out to the countryside, you're going back in time. You said something similar applies in Peru, but here in the yeah. UK, it's really quite different. Um, a lot of the less wealthy people are in certain like council estates in cities or in left behind towns. So like the town I'm in is actually there's a lot of wealthy people here at the south end of town. There is mm-hmm. one council estate, so like government housing near where I am, it's not so bad, it's not so badly off. So like the poorest places in the UK can often be in cities. And often if you go into the countryside, that's where you're getting into like big money, people working in, I don't know, finance or business or people who've inherited their wealth and so on. It's a strong contrast with China, I would say. One of the the strongest opposites, certainly with China, because I think a lot of things in human societies are not opposites. Like I don't think. Chinese and Western culture are opposite at all, but certainly the UK's spread of wealth between urban and rural is almost opposite China, I think. Now, another thing I was going to say, talking about some things in common, perhaps between China and Latin America, and this is something I did not learn when I lived there. I learned this doing this podcast, talking to people who are more expert Mm -hmm. in Chinese lit than me, is that there is some influence between Latin American literature like the stuff you mentioned from the seventies, mm-hmm. maybe eighties, yeah, um, that had on China. So I mentioned there were some changes after Mao Zedong died. That was a really important time when the country began to sort of open, and the China we know today, which is sort of half open, half closed, a little bit socialist, a little bit capitalist, that that China sort of had its birth, and that was really the dawn of modern Chinese literature, at least. The restart after a big pause, where everything had to submit to the ideology, that changed. There was still censorship, but not everything had to be like flying the red flag. Yeah. Um, and one thing that happened was because the floodgates had opened, Chinese literati, uh, people who were writing high-minded fiction, had access to literature from outside very easily again, and they don't, they didn't really have a bias towards stuff in English, so they're reading a lot of stuff from. Uh, Japan, perhaps Korea, I don't know, but certainly there was influence from Japan, and then all the European languages, which of course that would mean like the US and the UK, but on an even footing perhaps with like Germany, France, Spain, Italy, but probably equally important, like all of Latin America, and a lot of, I guess, if listeners don't know, there was a big wave at that time in Latin America that spread across the world, That I suppose at least in English, we'd mostly know as magical realism. So writers like uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Mm -hmm. Borges, you mentioned, all sorts of other authors. And I believe a lot of Chinese writers at that time were reading stuff like that and were sort of writing their own versions of it. So there's a very famous Chinese writer, Mo Yan. Have you heard of him? Yes, he won a novel. Yeah, yeah yeah Mm -hmm. yeah exactly um a lot of his stuff is very sort of magical realist i don't know if he's talked about the influences but if you're to read some stuff from his generation of writers it's totally there and one thing that's interesting about that is so a lot of western influence on china because modern china is hugely influenced by the west in so many ways like Mm -hmm. communism is a european ideology that's one really obvious example um a lot of that is filtered through like the anglosphere um us or british um either it's directly from those places or it's been filtered through them but this is a case where it totally sidesteps that it's some kind of uh i guess whether it's a european influence or not that's maybe a philosophical question but it's an influence from a european language which totally has no connection with english or Mm -hmm. those imperial countries it's um and it's Maybe makes a lot more sense because the conditions in, I guess, the developing countries of Asia are probably a lot more similar to the countries of South America than like empire building countries like the UK and the US.
1: Yes, actually, it's something. Yeah, it's exactly like that, you know, because in the 70s, you know, this literature wave that Latin America had was because in Spain, they were translating, well, not translating them, but they were publishing in Europe. So that way it reached, it it was something that they never seen before. That's why people talk about that even now, 50 years later, maybe something like that, you know? Well, you know, we are in the talks about um, maybe we are right now experimenting a new wave, again, in Latin, Latin American literature and also in the Chinese literature. Um, Something that I want to say is that and here in, in, in Peru, at least, we, we tend to talk about, well, it, it's more like a joke, but in the inside, it is not a joke. But we tend to, to say that, you know, China is going to be the next big country in, in, the, in, the, in the way of we see USA right now. We, we tend to, to say about that China is going to make everything better and bigger in the next few years. And one of the things that we always talk about is that how they are um, preparing their students and their athletes for the next Olympics, for the next uh, FIFA World Cup and stuff like that. And, you know, you, you have uh, a famous uh, football soccer players right now working in China because they, they you know, they retired in in, in this part of the world. And right now, China gave them a lot of money and told them, come here, practice with us. Um, and they, these are the things that are happening. And we, we tend to talk about how China is really, really, really big right now, because it's something that, wanted or not, it, it's going to happen, because we see it right now, even in the pandemic, what, what happened was that at least I'm talking about again, um, in from my point of view and some point of views of my friends and families here in Peru. That uh, right now because of the pandemics, USA was is now seen as a you know bad guy from the story because of everything they did. Um, obviously, it has to do a lot of with their president, ex president, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, it, it's it's something that it's changing a lot. It's really, really changing a lot. And and I don't know, it's, it's his, the history told us that what is going to happen, and sometimes it's repeating again. But yeah, that's, I don't know, it's, it's a lot of things to talk about, you know, that everything happens, or begins with, you know, um, the world war, and maybe the cultural government and, and all that stuff that, you know, it's, it's really, really interesting to see. I think,
0: yeah, claims about where the world, powers of the world are going are always interesting. I'm always careful not to make any really hard predictions, mm-hmm. but I think with China, um, it's hard to deny it's some, we're, we're going to see something in our lifetimes. And I think that is why Chinese sci-fi is very interesting. It's yes. um, like most sci-fi, it's looking to the future and people have said, and I think it's somewhat true that a lot of Western sci-fi right now, uh, when it looks to the future, it's looking to like apocalypse or post-apocalypse situations. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's pretty interesting to read. But a lot of the Chinese sci-fi is looking at arguably more concrete or realistic future situations, or they're not just defaulting to the world is destroyed. What do we do after? Which is interesting, I'm just gonna run downstairs and get a book. Uh, sure, <laughs> that is from the seventies. You'll see why this is relevant. One minute, right. I'll be back really
1: soon. Okay, no worry.
0: Right, got it. So yeah, I was I was going to say, sort of making the mm-hmm. opposite point to what we were talking about it might be that all the big predictions about China come to nothing. And I think certainly in like the, you can find if you want to find predictions about, of like yeah. doom and gloom relating to China from writers in the U S it's so easy to find the book I brought up from my downstairs bookshelf was written. And I think the seventies and it's called the emerging huh. Japanese Superstate*. So it's by this guy who was, I think in like U.S. Uh, like government sort of policy or think tank circles. And he wrote this book about how um, Japan, which whose economy was really strong at the time, was basically going to sort of emerge as a world power and um, mm. claim its place okay. at the top, replace the USA. And he just turned out to be totally wrong. Japan, I don't think ever had an ambition like that. And even if it did, its economy yeah. sort of flatlined in the 90s. And that was the end of it. And like, China is certainly not uh, like there's lots of um, weaknesses in its economy that we don't hear so much about. It has lots of problems. The authoritarian regime, you know, if if it were to come down or suffer a, like um, some kind of collapse, that would be the story of the century, I think, never mind China coming out on top. So it's it's equally interesting to speculate what if something goes horribly wrong. And it's less exciting to speculate yeah what if the Chinese development reaches a certain point and can't really get any further? I think it's is, is maybe also worth remembering like there mm-hmm. were points in the Cold War when people were sure that yes. the USSR had the superior system and that was it. But who knows?
1: <laughs> I, I hope we have the chance to see it. You know, I hope that we have the chance to see it. I, I hope this, what I said before, doesn't get you in trouble. I, I mean, I hope it is. Oh, no, no, no i'm fine i did i did have a show
0: uh, <laughs> i had this show on a chinese podcast site but uh it was doing fine until i did uh-huh. a season on taiwanese literature wow and then
1: okay let's not say that word again then
0: <laughs> no no we're we're fine uh we're fine um i don't because that that show's okay. taken down now and i never i never self i never censored myself mm-hmm. i would only ever take yeah. things out to protect a chinese guest i am but, not you're you're not a Chinese guest. You're not But I plan China, to go so to China, so uh, I,
1: I will just <laughs> say good you. Yeah. Um I think well, you'll you will know, be okay. That book. I I will look for that book right now. I, I am looking for that in in Amazon right now.
0: Yeah, the emerging Japanese superstate. I think it's out of print. This one I got is from a secondhand bookshop.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm seeing that right now. It's just in second hand right now. It's
0: got a really, I have to say, a really beautiful yeah, it is, um, yeah. cover design. It's I nice. I really like it. But um, I'm sure that if this guy was alive today, he would have some explaining to do <laughs> about how wrong he was. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, we should probably get yeah. back to The Wandering Earth. Sorry um, about that. So he, <laughs> this is my fault. And I think the listeners probably enjoyed our talk, so I don't think we need to worry. Um, I wanted to ask you, Mm-hmm. On rereading this book, because we the story, sorry, because we both reread it for this episode. Did you notice anything you didn't notice before? Yeah. Was there anything you noticed on your reread that hadn't been so obvious to you first time around?
1: What I noticed now in in the well, I, I read it three times ta- three times actually. Um, yeah. Uh, the first one, uh, the first thing I noticed was that the fact how. I am talking now in, in the way he writes, okay? I, I am a writer too, so it's I can't avoid that because anyway, I am a writer too. But the first thing I noticed was that how um, Liu tend to you know create a landscape of the whole story. That's something that I really like a lot about uh, about his writing because yes it's going to be dark it's going to be you know maybe depressing for some people but the way he starts the story is really really amazing i don't know how it, it it starts in in english but in spanish it's you know saying the character that he never saw the sunset or the you know stuff like that and it makes you wonder it makes you realize what's going on with this earth in this story and the second thing i noticed in this reread was how he describes society and how he tends to imagine what are going to be the next steps for the humanity it it, all, it always reminded me about you know in um, isaac asimov's uh, work trilogy uh, foundation um, i don't i don't know the word in english but you know there's this um, la historia I don't know what's how's that in English um psychohistory I believe
0: psychohistory like a psychological
1: history yeah it's psychohistory it's literally psychohistory that's um the word he coined for that book for those books right and it tends to you know it combines history and psychology and statistics about how um society is going to behave in uh you know, in certain point in the future. So when we read in the wandering earth and reading how you know what we talk about the the revolution that the uprising that, that came then maybe people trying to there is a scene where people are in their flying carts going watching to the sun with some homemade telescopes and realizing that this is, uh you know, this is uh, a lie. The sun was never going to explode. And they told us lies. That's something that we see right now in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. We have people believing that there is, there are no pandemic and we have, you know, anti vax people. <laughs> and that, that is what, Makes me, you know, uh, surprised in this reread how is a say, you know, author Cecilia Liu tend to see what's going on. Obviously, it's just maybe it's a coincidence, but the fact that he, as an author, sat down and wrote what what was going to happen in his story, and you know, years passed by. Right now, we are in the middle of the pandemic, year two of the pandemic, and watching all these things happen it It's something that makes you wonder, and it's something that I really enjoy wondering
0: yeah i I have a very good reply to that um because this is something i noticed i think I noticed it somewhat first time around, but i my mm-hmm. my thoughts weren't fully formed, and now having um I haven't read a lot more of the since then, but I've read sort of discussion of his works mm-hmm. and a little bit about his sort of perspective as a writer. Because I think it's fairly clear from some of the topics he hits on in in this and three body, he must have some like political views or views about human how human societies should organize themselves. And I think that a thing that this and three body have in common is the focus is on humanity uh, organizing itself as like preparation for a worst case scenario. And it seems like and it's hard to disagree with him, but he feels the things that you need to prioritize in these awful scenarios, like moving the earth through space or preparing for alien invasion is that the scientists should be in charge. Mm -hmm. People who are like smart, rational, logical and technocratic should be in charge. And when people in like emotional, ordinary, irrational, less sensible people get a hold on things, awful stuff happens. Um, I know there's a very controversial bit in three body where, um, there's a, a female character. What is she called? Cheng who is a little bit guide, more guided more by sentiment than by cold hard reason. And although I think I don't think she's presented as a bad person, but when her she makes a sentimental choice not to like press the nuclear button, that's what seals Earth's fate, and Earth is doomed. And I think you see that in Wandering Earth too, where these people who you know, like we're told in the pandemic. Mm-hmm believe the science, believe the science. Yeah. And the people who don't believe the science, I don't think I'm saying anything controversial when I say they're irrational, foolish people, <laughs> people who don't want to get vaccinated, foolish and irresponsible people. And I think those are like, those are the nightmare people for Liu Tzu-xin. I'm sure he doesn't like those people. So there's, the reason I'm bringing this up is there's a really interesting essay on a website called chuang.org, or it's a it's a publication. They they bring out books of uh, like es- critical essays, political stuff. Mm-hmm. They have um, like a, I guess, quite far left perspective on China. So it's like a basically a, a communist perspective that's, that is critical of things that go on in China. So it's communist criticism, not like the communist party authoritarianism. And they have this essay um, just under their name, hasn't got any individual's name attached to it, called The Wandering Earth, A Reflection on the Chinese New Right. And it's an attempt to like break people who are involved in online discussions on the Chinese internet into like different factions. And um, the, they identify, um, what is it here? Um, they, they put it into two categories, Prometheans and Young Cyber Nationalists, or you can translate it more literally to uh, in the Industrial Party and Little Pinks. Now, I think I can read this in Chinese. Industrial Party, I think it says uh, Gong Ya Tang. Little pinks, uh, Xiao Hong Fun, literally like little little pinks, little reds, mm-hmm. and the idea is the little pinks. They are people who are um, the the red thing. You shouldn't read it as being like socialist. Better to read it as like nationalist. They don't want to hear anyone criticize China. Okay. Um, their emotion, they're yeah, they're guided by their emotions and their passions. They're nationalists basically. So forget the red part and the the industrial party, the Prometheans, they are people who, this person is arguing, are more like the Otsushin. They want scientists, intelligent, rational, science te- STEM people, basically, to be in charge. Yeah. Science, technology, engineering, maths. They think that's the way to develop China, help it overtake the US, and so on. And the the person who wrote this essay is arguing that in the film Wandering Earth, but maybe also in the Otsushin's writing, you basically see, you kind of see these two things in tension the chinese nationalism and the more rational focus on like reason putting this the big brains the technocrats in charge but i think the argument is he's much more on the technocratic side of yeah. things and i know if ken leo the austen's english translator was listening right now he'd be banging my head against the desk saying stop saying bad things about my author stop making it all about politics <laughs> and like i myself don't think it's quite right to reduce the as this like right wing pro technology, pro-science, authoritarian guy, because I think he has a lot of qualities as a sci-fi writer that are go way beyond that. And I think he mm-hmm. does have a like a warm heart. You can see that in how he writes some of the characters. Yes. But I think it's interesting to think about this angle when looking at his stuff. I think as um as as people who like to read, we wouldn't really like to think as of any authors of having these sort of lines of thought being sort of like pro, mm-hmm. I, yeah, pro, um, having, I, having such a cold view of things. But I, and while I wouldn't really agree with that view on how society should be organized, I think it's really interesting to read a writer who seems to have some of those ideas in his head and how he plays that out in his fiction.
1: Yeah, but I believe it's also because, you know, um, Liu himself is a, you know, computer engineer. Mm-hmm and actually i in one of the interviews I, I saw he he confessed i don't know if the writer is confessed but he said that he knew that since he was a you know a teenager that he wanted to be a science fiction writer and so that's the reason he chose a career where he was close to the you know the developing technologies so that's why he chose computer computer engineer as a career and that's the moment i realized that i should have studied any th- something else, <laughs> you know, because, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love science fiction too, but if you are not aware of the changes that we are currently having as a society and as a, you know, a human beings, you will never uh, you will never write good science fiction. It's because you need to be close to the changes. And the fact that Sishin Liu made this, it's, as a writer myself, it makes me, you know realize that that's that's bold that's that's actually really really great to do that and it takes courage but yeah it's it's something that I I really like I um I tend to when I read his his works I I, honestly I always forget the you know the the fact that the you know the political postures that he might have I am just enjoying first then when I Mm. reread the, the the books the stories that's when I tend to realize the similarities between his reality because it's really different from ours. and mm. other thing that he said in an interview was when when somebody asked him how he um imagined all those things in in his stories regarding the you know the science fiction itself. And he said something that it's always stuck in my mind, and I always say that in my podcast is that uh, in China, they are living the science fiction. They are currently living a, chi- a, sci- a science fiction world. That should be a, a title for a book, actually. <laughs> but yeah, for example, uh, two weeks ago we in, on Twitter we had a, this uh, video was trending, what's trend topic in where I believe it was in in Shanghai where there were a lot of you know exhibition of drones, showing mm. some things in the sky and maybe they, they say I don't know if that's true that the the, the competition from that uh, company uh, hijacked the the coordinates of those drones and the drones started to fall down to the to the ground and people were just recording that and it was amazing because everything you see was a sky not full of stars but full of drones falling and Mm -hmm. that's when i thought you know that's that's why they write those kind of science fiction (laughs) that's why (laughs) they tend to write that and and it's amazing that's something that we don't have here
0: yeah um i i saw that one pop up too i i googled it quickly it (laughs) was I should point out it wasn't in Shanghai, it was in Zhengzhou.
1: Yeah.
0: And I think this is interesting. So Zhengzhou mm-hmm. is the capital of Henan province, which is, oh, I think, Henan. historically yeah. one of the less, less wealthy uh, provinces. Although it has, Or sorry, in modern China, it's a less developed, poorer province. I think Zhengzhou is, if you're visiting China, mm-hmm. uh, Zhengzhou, there's lots of amazing cities you want to go to. Zhengzhou not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to Henan, I think you'd better to go to a, like a historical site than the big city. Yeah. Um, But yeah, this is a really interesting way of looking at, it it helps, it serves the point I was trying to make about the contrast between levels of development in China, Mm because there are some amazing videos you can watch of drones performing spectacles. There's an incredible shot um, of a thing that happened in Shanghai, drones from this some from from some company formed up to form a qr code in the sky yes and people were post- posting that image alongside quotes from um, william gibson novels the cyberpunk writer
1: mm-hmm.
0: perfect but then in the exact same country you have these nightmare scenarios where drones fall from the sky because something went wrong in the technology or someone hacked it um i think i've tried to explain to a lot of people here back home is China is like one of the most chaotic places I've ever been to. So many things are disorganized, illogical, chaotic, confusing, and other things are amazingly slick, organized, friendly sometimes, sometimes unfriendly. Both those things are there at the same time in the same places. Although in this case, I think the contrast between Shanghai and Zhengzhou in Henan is worth underlining
1: there. Actually, what, what, when you say this about how China is a, a chaotic in, in that in that in that um, you know in that category, uh, it reminds me uh, this book from I don't know if I am saying his name correctly Chen um, Chen Chen Qifan, Chen Fan, Yeah Yeah uh, Weissite Yeah For example, that book for me is one of the rarest cyberpunk books that I read. You know and, and when you said chaotic, that book came to my mind because it's <laughs> exactly that.
0: It's like a storm, that one.
1: Yes. Yes, it is.
0: Yeah. Chen um, Shou Fan is an interesting guy. Like His um, his uh, appearance is always so like smooth and slick, and he always seems so calm. But so many of his stories are like mm-hmm. chaos. Chaos reigns in loads of his stories. Wastetide is not the favorite thing of his that I've read. I think I like his short stories better. But for a look at like all the crazy levels of just things that can be going on in one city in China, mm-hmm. uh, it's a great fictional version of that. Totally.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, I, I believe there is a story, a short story from, uh, from, from him. I don't know the title in English, but I, be, I remember that I read it in Invisible Planets, you know? Mm. Uh, and that's...
0: What's it about?
1: I only recall a passage it was about a, a guy was in a, a retreat, you know, going away from, I believe, the city and all that stuff. Um, I, don't, yep. I, I don't remember the, the, uh, the title. I think it's the fish. The English title is uh, The Fish of Lijiang. Lijiang, yeah. El Pez de Lijiang. Yeah, I remember that. It, it, that's one of the best short stories that I read, you know. I, I really love that. I enjoyed that story because it was, again, depressing. I I kind of like that kind of stories, actually, Mm. because it's really, it connects with the, for me at least, with the modern society, at least, in in how I have no time at all to make things, my personal things, because of the work. But yeah, I I read it before the pandemic, and I read it again uh, a few months ago, and it it changes a lot. Yeah. Mm.
0: Yes. What I was going to say there about The Fish of Lijiang is, Mm -hmm. again... This is a great example of Chinese sci fi having a connection with reality. Lijiang is yeah. a real place. Um, the re- mm-hmm. I've been there. I went actually, I wow. went on holiday there, just not not using it as the same kind of holiday that main character <laughs> is using yeah, it for. Yeah. I was just I was touring through uh, that province, Yunnan. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, like the reputation of it being a place for sort of burnouts, people looking yeah. for like a one night stand culture, that's a real thing. And he just sort of took it five minutes into the future and turned it into a piece of fiction that people all over the world have been able to enjoy. So yeah, and I I think I like about any fiction, um, but it applies to a lot of Chinese sci-fi, is that it's connected with real places that you could feasibly visit. Like anyone who was able to get a tourist visa for China and could fly in, get the right train, could go visit Bijang, and then sort of Put on their um their uh, what's the word augmented reality fiction reader spectacles and imagine it as Chen Shuo fans Li Jiang. I realize that we've kind of gone all over the place in our conversation. Yes, um,
1: sorry about that.
0: No, no, it's good, it's good. I just wonder, do you want to talk about anything specific about the Wandering Earth? Because my next couple of topics were also quite general. Mm-hmm. Is there anything about like characters or plot you want to hit on that we didn't hit on yet?
1: I believe that we already talked about everything regarding that you know
0: yeah i want to ask um i remember mm-hmm. we mentioned his japanese wife did you find that interesting that we have a japanese character um who's a fairly major part of the, the events
1: yeah um it's yeah it, i found it interesting because the first thing i i, I thought was um he's chinese is disallowed but <laughs> but uh um a few pages before that scene uh we we tend to see how society was changing because of that and you talked about a, li- a little bit before about um you know how certain you know the the future must be seen uh for scientists you know they they have to be in charge and there is a scene where where Liu's work talks about how the future and the fact that the earth was, you know, moving to Alpha Centauri, people forgot about love, forgot about religion. And that's something that really stuck in my head because that scene um, prepared you for when, you know, the Japanese wife came because that's when Liu told you things have changed people are no longer attached to a place, to a ideology, to a religion. Mm. And that's something that I really honestly want to happen in, in this real world because, um, you know, I, I am not those kind of person that tend to criticize the other. I always, I am always enjoying the moment and I am always open to, to see what other people think about. And I believe that's some, one of the stuff that I, I really love about this story how that's maybe that's why the, 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 the Japanese wife never you know I, I understood why he put her there but mm-hmm. then when the revolution came and she you know she became all this stuff like you know I am this other kind of ideology that I don't know I it, it just surprised me I, I never see, saw that coming
0: Yes. Now, this reminded me a lot, even on my first reading, this reminded me (laughs) a lot of the three body problem. Because in three body, it's it's an interesting conflict. Because on one hand, all of humanity comes together to solve its problems. On the other hand, we don't see a lot of blurring of like national identities. In fact, you see kind of the opposite all the Western characters we meet. With like one yeah. or two obse- ob- exceptions, are assholes basically, and they kind of fill a type. And I think he's making a good point here about like Western Europeans and Americans. They're mm-hmm. they're uh, they like to preach and talk down to the Chinese characters, take a moral yeah. high ground, uh, be quite stubborn and rigid, and sometimes do nasty things. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe that's a stereotype, but it's not entirely unjustified. So. The, the one like western character who is a, a cool guy is the Russian guy <laughs> so um, if that was that felt like almost too deliberate on Iota part and then we do have also I think three Japanese characters appear some more briefly than others one is really briefly there's like some western guy in a spaceship he's fleeing earth He sees, I forget exactly what happens, but like he in passing meets Mm -hmm. or glances at some Japanese woman and they have some sort of romantic connection. That's it. So that's a very brief, it's barely worth commenting on. There's another Japanese woman who um, we think is all right, but is revealed to be a traitor in League with, uh, a traitor to mankind with, with, I think it's an American boyfriend. It's
1: it's the wife, I believe, uh, from one of the i don't know what the, the chosen ones you know they were
0: yeah the wall facers
1: yes yes
0: so a treacherous I read in
1: spanish sorry
0: yeah <laughs> right no it's okay um so we have a treacherous uh, uh, sorry a beautiful japanese woman
1: mm-hmm.
0: a treacherous yeah. beautiful japanese woman and then the other japanese character is sofon the alien robot who decides to take on a Japanese appearance, I think with like clothing and she does Japanese tea ceremonies Mm -hmm. and she's a really interesting character because at first we think she's sort of friendly, then she becomes extremely vicious and sadistic in a way that made me think of some of the the things Japanese soldiers did in World War II, like striking people and stuff, driving them into prison camps. And then later she becomes much more of a benign or benevolent or neutral sort of character and befriends Mm -hmm. our, our heroes who are all, of course, Chinese. And then in this story, again, we have, it's, on my first reading, I was like, well, when she became a baddie, I was like, well, surprise, surprise, it's Leo Sushin with his grinding his axe against Japanese women, and not men, only women, interesting pattern. But then on my reread, I thought she is actually a more interesting character because she seems to be a genuinely, like, intelligent, nice person when we first meet her, and when she uh, goes bad, she she really thinks she's doing the right thing and she's been pushed to a desperate situation and at the end the main character has survived with his kids and his grandkids and they are all this this i thought was really interesting so i have a quote here i last visited the surface more than a dozen years ago accompanied by my son daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law a blonde-haired blue-eyed girl oh yeah and it also says a blonde Haired blue eyed girl. She was heavily pregnant by then. So if you think about this, he doesn't say it outright. His son is half Chinese, half Japanese. Mm-hmm. This son has, I guess, married. Yeah, he's married a girl who's must be European in some kind. Yeah. And she, this girl, this European girl is pregnant. So their kid is going to be part Chinese, part Japanese, part something. Yeah. Um, yes. European. So that is the future that we don't see in Three Body in a way. <laughs> if you see what I mean, like a multicultural mixed race future, you only see a, a snatch of it, but I've totally missed that on my first read that he's hinting at something that he never hinted at really in Three Body.
1: And and if you keep reading that part, you know, uh, just going to the end of that story, um, the, the character remembers the Japanese wife. Mm. And that's that sort of um, took out for me because uh, for me, it it, didn't, it ended ended. With her as a bad person, you know, but as you say, she's not really bad. She just thinks different, and she takes a stand, and that's something you know everybody can do that. But having the character uh, remembering her at the end of the lines of the story is something that made me realize that that okay, maybe he doesn't have a grudge with her. Uh, it, that he he doesn't hate her. He he never he never did that. Um, Even the way they meet, it's actually, for me, one of the most beautiful scenes because that scene has one of the great uh, descriptions of loneliness and how immense the the space is and how we as a humanity, we are just tiny, you know. I I, I really love that and yeah, I, I believe that The character of that Japanese woman is really interesting. And I know it's going to have a lot of, we are going to have a lot of different perspectives with that. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, no, I I agree. It felt a lot more, I think it's more um, sincere and human than I noticed on my first reading. The last thing I wanted to mention about the story Mm -hmm. before we talk about some other stuff is um, how the stuff I enjoyed most, I think, and on my reread especially was the descriptions of basically all the um, trauma, the surface of the earth has to go through. It's a, so what we, we were saying how a reminder of the uh, the story and his stories in general remind you how small, vulnerable, short lived we are against the huge scale of the universe, but also it's a reminder of how fragile the earth's ecosystem is. Cause you know, right now yeah. we have the, an earth that has all sorts of different environments um, burning deserts, frozen North Pole and South Pole, oceans, land, blah, 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 blah. It's very diverse with lots of animals. And um, in this story, like the earth gets scorched, it gets frozen, it gets flooded, it's um, burned by rain. It's totally, uh, barely or totally uninhabitable most of the time. Mm-hmm. It's totally, uh, it's whatever environment it's in, uh, either huge burning rockets or freezing cold space it's totally at the mercy of those things and the way it's described and certainly in the English translation is fantastic it felt like the story almost just existed so that those descriptions could exist in a way I thought it was brilliant
1: yes um, you know the, the reason why I, I I went to buy the book before uh, after I, I saw the movie was because of that I have always enjoyed the destruction of earth <laughs> in, in uh, media culture you know um, I have always enjoyed that that those kind of movies. And when I saw The Wandering Earth, the, the movie, I, I, I really loved everything the Earth went, went through. And when I went to read the, the story because of that, I, I realized that descriptions are really, really great. Uh, I mean, this wasn't my first Sishin Liu. This wasn't my first time reading Sishin Liu. It, I knew what I was going to find. But the way he describes everything that happens and... The, the fact that this is a, a story, more like a novelette, it, it makes it, you know, at least as a point of view of, of a writer, it makes me realize that how good he is describing things, big things in such a small amount of space, you know? And yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. I, I, I am always enjoying that kind of described, this, this, how he describes all those things. Mm,
0: yeah, totally. And I think what you were saying about the visuals of the film, mm-hmm. uh, one thing I did like about the film that the story doesn't have is one of the missions our heroes in the film have to go on involves visiting the ruins of Shanghai. Yes. Uh, they, they, you see like the tops of the, the towers of the financial district poking out the ice. That was fantastic. And also, although <laughs> I was saying the film is like a more, probably more a product of censorship than the story that was actually a really it was a a first time in chinese cinema that you saw a destroyed uh post-apocalyptic chinese city um it sort of proved that you could depict that yeah only the only times you would have seen anything like that in chinese cinema before would be like destroyed by war like if the Mm -hmm. Japanese imperial army destroyed a city or maybe if it was destroyed in a civil war or of course way back in imperial China if I don't know the Mongols or something destroyed a city you could show Mm -hmm. it but like a totally destroyed modern Chinese city that I think I'm pretty sure that's a first in Chinese cinema and obviously that's not that's not a um, massive um, Mm -hmm. landmark that's not like a film where the Chinese president is assassinated or something, but it's still something. It's it's um it's yeah. a, a bold move, I think,
1: showing destroyed Shanghai. I, I didn't realize that actually because uh, as I um here we I don't know at least I am really always enjoying destroyed countries, cities in <laughs> movies. So that's when I when I saw that I just assumed it was normal. But now that you say that, it's it's really interesting.
0: Yeah, it's really normal to see destroyed New York or something. It would have been... Yes, they're always destroying New York. Exactly, yeah. It's an easy thing for the Chinese filmmakers to show us destroyed New York or destroyed Paris. Mm. But in a way, there's enough confidence there to be like, yeah, Yeah. we will show you our own destroyed city. Although we didn't show us destroyed Beijing. (laughs) Maybe that would be uh, a step too far. (laughs) I wonder, can we talk about um, the world of Chinese sci-fi to spanish translation since Mm -hmm. you're on the show um i don't know how much you you know i was just wondering if there is like one big name translator so i think i'm not entirely sure actually if it was ken leo or someone else who translated this to english but certainly for like most of the chinese the big name chinese sci-fi that exists in english translation Mm -hmm. ken leo is the is the guy Um, I think that's changing now I think he's maybe focusing more on his own work and we're seeing other translators making more of a like a career or a a mark but like he's still like the man for English stuff that's been translated from yeah he opened the gates he opened the gates yeah he he
1: made he made this possible Mm -hmm. yeah there there's an interesting
0: story like some other The other publishers and authors that are involved, um, I can never quite remember it off by heart. I think the very opening move was made by uh, a a guy working in the Chinese, um, it's like an import-export publishing business. So that handles a lot of like buying and selling rights for mostly things like textbooks and stuff. Mm-hmm. but i think this guy saw potential for chinese sci-fi and um i know that ken leo started translating chinese sci-fi because of a conversation with chen Chiu fan have
1: you heard this yeah. story before i heard that yeah yeah yep
0: yeah. yeah. um so anyway i was just wondering if you know is there like one spanish name that you see in a lot of these translations to spanish
1: no we don't we don't have that i mean there there are uh, several translators we have uh from different languages but we don't have uh you know the top tier we don't we don't have we don't have a Can uh recently uh you know maybe since 2018 maybe we are recently trying to show the translators on the book covers mm. because that's something that's a work that maybe people doesn't even care you know, but because of uh, when I said that um, can you opened the gates it was because, you know, the publishers in Hispano America, they said that they saw that a a massive, you know, wave with a book like with a trilogy from the three body problem. They realized, OK, we need to translate this to Spanish because it's selling a lot. And one of the things that I really am grateful of uh, the Spanish publishers is that they translate directly from the source language to the Spanish. They, they don't use a the, the English translation. Yeah. You know, uh, so that's why we, we have, since the beginning, since the three body problem, we have this kind of uh, translator. I don't remember his name or her name. Uh, honestly, I don't remember, but they tend to be two or three translators when we are talking about chinese books because of different you know the, the chinese language itself is really complicated so that's why i believe they need more than two translators sometimes but yeah i, I honestly don't know how difficult it might be i i believe that it, it it should be a little bit difficult even you know spanish is a rich language we had we have a lot of a lot of words we are we, we we don't have just monosyllabs like the english mm. in spanish it's really really difficult sometimes and i often heard some friends telling me uh, well english speaking friends telling me that spanish is really difficult for them and even when for us uh, as a you know uh, spanish we we talk spanish it's it's really more easier for us to to learn the Asian languages, such as Japanese, Chinese, or even um, Korean, you know the Hangul, uh, because I don't know, maybe it's a romantic language that we have. We would tend to to speak better. But anyway, um, regarding the translators, we don't have a big name yet, but we are recently trying to. The publishers are recently trying to put the translator's name on the book cover right now. That's something that maybe in indie publishers are doing already. And yeah, I, I believe that's that's great. But again, the translation that we had from the Chinese to Spanish, at least from Xixing Liu's works, are really amazing. Really, really are really great. You know, they, they are I, I really enjoy that. And I read some stories in English to just to see if it was good, you know. And yeah, it it's great. I'm certainly not an expert in, in
0: Chinese or Mandarin, and I'm not a translator, but I've talked to quite a lot of uh, mm-hmm. people who translate uh, this stuff to English now. Yeah. And the the feeling I get is that if a translator from any language to English deserves their name on the cover, certainly one language where their translator really deserves credit as a kind of, a I know this is technically controversial, but like a creative contributor is Chinese to English. And I'm sure the same would apply to Chinese to Spanish. And that's because the languages are on just as, Mm. you know, a big difference is Spanish and English are alphabetical Mm -hmm. and Chinese uses characters. That's one big difference. But another huge difference is they're just in totally different language trees. I don't think they've really got, the only way that they've got overlap is in modern instances where Chinese has borrowed words from English or other European languages and has maybe just like transliterated them, or there's some obvious connection. But basically, Mm -hmm. there's nothing like, say, from English to French or English to Spanish where you know exactly there's a perfect match word where you uh, like, yeah, where sometimes a computer will do just the same job as the human translator for Chinese. I guess that's that's just far less the case that you have to make a lot more choices as the translator and the quality of, if you're a good translator, you could actually do amazing things with the story by finding perfect words or perfect ways to rearrange the sentence. Um, So to me, like if a Chinese story published in English doesn't have the translator's name at least somewhere on the cover or somewhere inside, it seems Mm -hmm. a bit sus to me, like, why have you concealed the, this person's name? Because this person has done is indispensable. Like a machine yeah. could never do this person's job. I'm sure that applies for translations between Spanish and English or vice versa, but for languages that are on totally different branches of the tree, like it's crazy to me that um, there's cases where translators names don't go on the cover or even in the book.
1: Yeah. I, I didn't knew that. Actually, I didn't know that about, uh, how or when to put a translator's name on, on the on mm. the cover, um, but I, I believe yeah it, it's a it's a lot of work you know uh, for example uh, for Haruki Murakami's books we we always have we have always had these direct translations from the Japanese to the Spanish mm. and honestly I read the English ones the ones translated by Jade Robin you know Murakami's first translator and uh, it doesn't it feels the same as you say when the translator is great if we are lucky well we have the the same um feeling that the author wanted to create for the story so that's something that i really enjoy I, i will look more for that and i will let you know as soon as i because now i am curious about how the translators for spanish Works because I, re- I I I can assume that it's it's a lot of work, you know, translating not only Chinese but uh, science fiction. Mm. So that yeah, that's something that you, as a translator you need to to realize what what you're doing.
0: Yeah, um, on on the show and also mm-hmm. for my publishing masters, I thought a lot about different kinds of the kinds of people who get involved in translating this stuff. Um, my master's dissertation was about basically the business of translating chinese sci-fi to english and i took a wider look at just all chinese lit in general going into english and i had a go at breaking the types of translator into categories mm-hmm. uh, i can't really remember those categories now but there's all sorts of interesting things you can look at um yeah. so like a really basic thing is like the translator's like nationality like and also their first language i know that there's lots of angry, heated discussions about, like, if someone is translating Chinese to English, should their first language be English? Is that essential? Mm-hmm. I probably would never have an opinion on that because I wouldn't <laughs> want to make anyone mad. But um, it's a question, like, what is their first language? What's their nationality? Interesting. Are, like, if they're, say, if they're British, are they British Chinese? Or are they just, like, do they have no, like, ethnic connection to China? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's those sites, those sorts of angles, identity sort of angles, but then also like, um, are they an author? Do they write their own books? So like one of my, actually two of my favorite translators, uh, Ken Liu and Jeremy Tiang. So they're both um, ethnically Chinese, one's Chinese American, one's Singaporean. But the thing that I think really sets them apart, although obviously that gives them an important something, is that they both write their own fiction um, in okay. English, actually. So they're, extremely competent writers of English, which means when they're translating, they can make a beautiful sentence. They're not just trying mm-hmm. to write something for accuracy. So there's that. Another thing that's really big in Chinese to English translation is academic writers. A lot of um, the, because this it's, it, it translating, being a literary translator pays really badly. So if you're yeah. in academia, Um, You can sort of do it as part of your career or university publishing houses might publish some of your work. So like some very interesting Chinese lit you can get in English has been put out by university press who sometimes don't really do a very good job of marketing it because they're not a commercial publisher. And sometimes the translators will have tried really hard to be accurate and because they're an academic. They might have put loads of footnotes explaining things, which some people who just want to read fiction hate. Personally, I quite like footnotes, but the academ- the influence of academia on publishing books, which in Chinese were just fiction for, en- for entertainment, maybe is a thing. I suppose another thing might just be like people who are not so connected. So like there's one or two things translated <clears throat> from Chinese I've read from people who are not authors. They're not in academia. They've um, only got one or two translations to their name. Yeah. Like they're... An interesting sort of do you know the phrase a dark horse no i don't oh it's it's a, like someone who enters in a race and no one knows anything about them so they're not famous for being bad or good they're an unknown element so there are oh, some okay. translators to me who are like sort of like dark horses okay there's not so much info on them they're not famous for anything they're not attached to university but they might do something very interesting because they've not they're not from the same uh they could have a very different perspective
1: but to to translate uh, you know uh from Chinese, I believe that you at least need to have this understanding of the Chinese culture. I believe that's something Socially. that you really need.
0: Yeah, yeah. And also an understanding of what your target readers can understand. Yeah. So like speaking of dark horses, there was a translation from Amazon, Amazon Crossing, who mm-hmm. published stuff from translation. And they have a really good selection of translated Chinese books. They have a lot of genre fiction because this is one problem with translation from Chinese to English that Chinese sci-fi helped to solve is that they'll maybe because you could only get funding for important literary books or because so much of the funding is from academia and they don't want to touch genre fiction. There's a similar sort of snobbishness in the English language literature to maybe what you were describing in Latin America. So the genre fiction translations are hard to come by, but Amazon crossing, I guess, because they just want to sell books and they are very, Amazon has, enough money to send rockets into space so they don't mind taking some risks so they have some genre fiction published and there's one sort of like ghost horror story novel published by them called um the child's past life although the chinese name was way better it was um 成事河, which is a life death river like the river of life and death okay so i don't know why they called it Child's Past Life, because that's a worse title. But the translator was, I don't know if she was like Chinese American or a Chinese migrant to the US, but she was some Chinese lady whose name I'd never come across before. Bits of the translation were really nicely done. Others, the English was a little wonky, but I thought it was really charmingly done. But there were some bits where she just sort of didn't bother to adapt it to something a reader would understand. I can't really think of any good examples, but there were bits where it was like, well, it's I'm really lucky that I lived in China for a few years because if I didn't, this would be gibberish to me. And some of that's fine because everyone's got Google. Everyone can look something up. But there was some stuff where it was like, okay, this woman clearly has an understanding of Chinese culture because I guess it seems like she's from there or grew Mm -hmm. up there or something. But you also have to know what your reader can get. Yes, Because like... There's with maybe with Spanish and English, it's not so bad. But like with China, there's thousands of years of history. There's a whole pop culture, high culture, which is very rich and full of cultural references, which even me, 90%, I'm not going to get at all. A translator might know what to adapt or to explain or to swap for something
1: else. Yes, I also love footnotes, actually. Um, That's something that I, I am not seeing lately in the books I am reading. Regarding the translation, we we, for Spanish it's also difficult because sometimes we we had a you know bad translations. For example, um, Neuromancer from Gibson, it was a book that I didn't read until this year because I knew that the the translation was bad. Everybody Mm. told me that, that do not read Neuromancer's translations right now because it's a translation from you know 30 years ago and it's not good and right now we are right. currently having um spanish editorials republishing again classics like for example fahrenheit from bradbury um ursula caleguin but with a new translation we are currently having that and actually i bought recently a neuromancer uh, the new edition from a translator that i know in spain and yeah they, we are currently having great translations. I believe that uh, publishers are recently focusing on hiring new and, and great translators. And that applies to the Chinese science fiction because it's really necessary because of the words, because of the, you know, all that stuff that comes to when we read the descriptions of, of the scenes and all that stuff. And I personally, I try to read uh, in Spanish because I know it's going to be a Chinese science fiction. I know it's going to be a long trip. And so that's at least for my, um, to understand the story. But sometimes I read in English and I realize that it's really, really great. You know, I, I read some of the, can you, I read Invisible Planets in English and it's great. It, it's, it's really, I really enjoyed the, the, the reading, but yeah. I see
0: that we've almost been talking for two hours. So I'm going to keep us moving.
1: Wow, two hours. It's amazing. It's amazing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah. crazy. I've done these for three hours or I think I once had one that was three and a half and I managed to edit it down to three hours, but oh my God, I tried to avoid uh, <laughs> stuff that long. One really mm-hmm. last question, really quick last question about the scene where you are. Um, You mentioned that there's a lot of Chinese diaspora families and people yeah. living in Peru. Do you think that's affected uh, or have you. Yeah, has that affected the way writers like Liu Cixin have been received in Peru? Like, have you have you got Peruvian Chinese friends you can talk to about this stuff?
1: No, honestly, I don't. Actually, when I graduated, I, all my Chinese uh, Peruvian friends went to Canada. I don't know why. Oh, everybody, everybody went to Canada, and I, I honestly don't. I am not sure if there is a Chinese Peruvian people reading Sisyon Lius or any Chinese science fiction. I believe there might be, but science fiction is currently being read by, you know, by younger people. They're always trying to grab the books and um, we don't, actually, we, we don't have a lot of Stock, you know, when that when a book arrives to Lima, they disappear. We, we you have to be you know um, aware of when a, a certain book is arriving. Right now, for example, I am looking. I am I'm sorry. I am I am waiting for the new translation from Liu that we had. It's a stories. I don't know the name. Let me tell you. Uh, it's a the new the new short stories. Sostenere el cielo. Um, something with sky in the title.
0: Oh yeah, the English name is. Uh hold up half the
1: sky yeah that one that's the the new one that we that we had polished uh, a few weeks ago and for example it, it it is currently on sale in spain but we are waiting for we're waiting for it to arrive to latin america and it's going to take at least three months maybe six months because of the pandemics and that sucks
0: yeah i i was I thought of this question earlier and forgot mm-hmm. to ask it. Like, if you, if you walk into a big commercial bookshop in Lima and you go looking for Chinese sci-fi, what do you think you'd be likely to find?
1: Uh, you will definitely find the three-body problem. That's the one. Mm-hmm. And then I, I saw um, the Vagabonds from Jing Feng Hao the other day. Oh cool. Yeah, it, cool. It's, it's it's really great, you know, to, to find her in a bookstore. I, I really enjoyed Falling Beijing. Actually, that's the reason why I jumped to the Chinese science fiction. Uh, and and yeah, I I, I really enjoyed Vagabonds, although it was a really long book. But yeah, long yeah. and slow. Yes. But it's yes. good. Yeah, it was good. It was good. And yeah, um, well, Xi Xin Liu, uh Feng Hao, uh Uh, waist tight Uh, it's also there but it's Mm. not on the first thing that you see when you enter a bookstore Uh, it depends on the bookstore actually because the the main two bookstores that we have here they tend to sell fiction as i said before in latin america we tend to people tend to choose you know fiction just fiction people are boring sometimes um <laughs> but when there is a specialized bookstore um you have literally a whole wall full of science fiction books and there you can find the chinese science fiction books mm.
0: yeah um my experience here is kind of similar um like in big kind of commercial normal bookshops mm-hmm. in the uk three bodies almost certainly going to be there if it's big enough you'll have some other ones like waste height was definitely there when it was new there's a really nice uh, UK edition of Wastetide. Tide to see if I can send you the cover. It's the version I have. It got delayed a few times, but it's amazing. Let me see if I can get it up. I really embarrassed myself because I met the publishers and I told them I thought I'd seen that edition on a bookshelf. And they're like, wait, it's not out yet. You couldn't have seen it. And they were kind of disturbed. And I realized like the next day, no, I um, I totally misremembered. I saw it online <laughs> and, and I, yeah, I freaked them out yeah here it is i'll send you the link
1: wow that's beautiful
0: yeah yeah yes it is so that was on the shelves when it was new but like it's interesting vagabonds i have not seen on any bookshelves here and some other stuff like some of the more niche mm-hmm. books you sometimes see it um redemption of time the fan sequel to three body by Baoshu. i've seen that on shelves but it's been a lot more liotushin three body centric i would say that, and I guess Ken Leo's uh, Invisible Planets and Broken Stars, those were fairly common as well. But everything else outside of like Ken Leo, you Shin, you'd be more lucky to find it. And as for the yeah. categories, I found in UK bookshops, if it's a big enough bookshop, mm-hmm. sci-fi gets its own section. Yes. If it's a smaller one, like the one we have in the town I'm in, Nutsford, there is a Waterstones. That's like the big commercial bookshop company, but it's quite a small one. So there... Sci-fi shares its space with fantasy, so like, if uh, if I find Leo Tsushin, I guess here he'd be Tsushin Leo. He might be next to a fantasy author whose surname begins with L.
1: Yes, that that happens a lot, which I think is kind of messed up, but whatever. Yeah, in here, for example, in the, in the, I, I, I buy some books from Butterstones actually. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I really love their limited editions that they have. The last book I I bought from them was, uh, Be Schwab's the the invisible life of adela rue that's it, fantasy it's a, it's a really gorgeous book but then again talking about science, chinese science fiction here we yeah we, we have exactly the, like you said several stores have um chinese fi- uh, science fiction and fantasy we have it it's 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 really, it's really curious because you you can see essentially you three body problem next to a rhythm of war from Brandon Sanderson it's not even ordered in a, a you know a with names, uh. it's it's really um, curious that, um, for example, people don't know about Invisible Planets or Broken Stars. They don't know about Ken Liu, uh, but they know about Ken Liu's novels. You know, it, it is it's sort of I don't know. It's it, it's interesting that, but I, I I always when people tend to ask me about what to read in Chinese science fiction, I I told them that to read first Invisible Planets because it's a stellar point. And I believe yeah, that's, yeah. It's a great start. It, yeah, it's a great start, because there you will find not only folding Beijing, but also uh, even Liu's work there. If you like this, you will definitely enjoy The Three-Body Problem, because The Three-Body Problem is a great story, but there are three books, and it's going to be a long journey with that. But that, yeah, yeah, that's something that I tend to recommend people.
0: I think um, a thing that might have benefited Ken Liu in terms of getting his name out, was that he's got the same family name as Liu Cixin? Yeah. So on bookshelves here, his novels are right next to Free Body Problem*. And I, I can tell you an interesting factoid uh, that I've learned from Chinese fans <laughs> of Liu Cixin. So uh, Liu Cixin's nickname in uh, among his fans in China is Dalio, which means Big Leo. I've just sent you that in the chat. The Dalio. And Ke- and they call Ken Leo. Xiao Liu so you can see the second character is the same yeah the same and the first oh. character is the car the word for small so big leo little leo da leo and xiao liu it sounds almost too too sort of <laughs> obvious to be true but that's that's their nicknames with their fans
1: and is Ken liu uh, also uh renowned in in china
0: yeah i believe um his um you can get his books in chinese translation mm-hmm. in china I really think it helps that he's Chinese American. Um, I think that makes him more of interest to Chinese readers, which, you know, like it's, it's um, hard for me to put myself in the shoes of those readers because um, there's, there's no such thing as a British diaspora. There's just British expats. It's, I mean, it's just (laughs) totally different, but, um, but it, it, you can't, you can't blame, you can't blame Ch- uh, Chinese readers or publishers for being interested in publishing <laughs> Chinese diaspora writers yes. back into Chinese. It's an obvious, seems almost obvious. I, but I do know there's another um, uh, Chinese American sci-fi writer whose name. This is terrible. Um, why can't I think of his name? He is the guy that wrote the story that the movie Arrival is based on. Ted Chiang. Yeah, Ted Chiang. That's right. That's embarrassing because I've actually read one of his books. Yeah, I know Ted Chiang is um, is popular with Chinese sci-fi readers in China. Mm-hmm. And it's doubly interesting because I, I don't think Ted Chiang goes out of his way to put anything Chinese into his stories. But I think it just helps that for Chinese readers, he has a Chinese name. I don't think they'd be calling him Ted Chiang. I think they'd be calling him by whatever his Chinese name is. Yeah. So it'd be like Jiang something, something. But yeah, I, I've... I've heard from a couple of friends who are into Chinese sci-fi that um, he's, he's, he's popular with them. I was going to say, when you mentioned that your Chinese Peruvian friends didn't seem especially interested, that sort of rings true to my limited experience here in the UK. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a group I regularly take part in called the London Chinese Science Fiction Group, okay. which used I think it used to be a real meetup in London, which I couldn't join in because I was living in Scotland. But in the pandemic, they've switched to like Zoom meetings. And um, the I'm pretty sure that like out of all the, it's mostly Chinese people who join it, but I think they are mostly um, people living in China or people who have gone abroad from China to study. So it's like first, if they are going to be a migrant, they're like first generation. So okay. they're from the mainland China. They got um, Mandarin names. Uh, one of the two leaders, so there's two people who sort of lead the group. One is Liu Guangzhou or Lu, Lu Guangzhou. He's he's more or less exactly that. He's from Shanghai. He went to London to do his PhD. He's gone back to China. But the other, so he's like, um, he was a Chinese student abroad. Now he's back in China. The other leader, Angela Chan, she's uh, British Chinese. I'm pretty sure she's, yeah, her, she's, her parents are, or her family, sorry, is a Cantonese, like a Hong Kong background. And I think for most of the British Chinese diaspora, they're in that sort of group. They're, they've been here much longer, and they're, yeah. they have a Hong Kong Chinese background.
1: They, they made a, a meeting recently, right, in, in Zoom, I believe, uh, yeah. where Xiajia was. Shia-Jia, yeah, they had Xiajia.
0: I missed that one. And then most yeah, recently, I, I was it was there. Chen Fan. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah, oh, I was shame. there.
1: I, I, never, I didn't know that it was all this. I, I saw on Twitter, and I, and I said, I want the link.
0: Okay, well, yeah. next time we should make sure we're both there. We can say hi.
1: I believe that Shaja is in. Well, the, the the keynote of Shaja is on YouTube right now. It's really amazing.
0: Mm-hmm. She's she's awesome.
1: But it, it it should it should be great to know these people that you're talking about. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so that it was a very small point I was wanting to make mm-hmm. there, but yeah, I noticed that there doesn't seem to be a big although it's a UK somewhat UK based group. I don't think there's a very big british chinese contingent there or if they are it's people who've arrived for study very recently rather yeah. than like i mean i didn't really grow up next to many scottish chinese kids but um from what i gather someone my age who's british chinese mm-hmm. isn't necessarily going to be any more interested in chinese pop culture mainland mainland chinese pop culture than your average fellow yeah uh, british person they might be but i don't think based on what i've seen like it's not an obvious go-to.
1: Yeah, I think it will depend on the, on the on the family actually, because yeah. how traditional your family is, you know. Mm-hmm. Because on the other hand, in one hand, you can have this traditional family from China that they invite you to this New Year uh, Chinese, you know, dinner or whatever, uh, as I did when I was young with my friends. But then we have this other family that they honestly don't know anything about, or I, I don't, don't they don't even care about that part of the the family you know yeah uh, yeah it will depend i believe i i know that
0: for most of the british chinese diaspora who've been here longer mm-hmm. they're all from hong kong because of the imperial okay connection yes so i yes. they might themselves not really identify very much with stuff from the mainland whereas mm-hmm. i don't know yeah. if there are peruvian chinese people more likely to be from the mainland
1: i i knew one of one uh i didn't study with this people with this person but i knew him because he owned this chinese food restaurant and i tend to went there before the pandemic like of oh, two days per week and i used to sat there and write because i love the you know i love the, the environment they had with this chinese um, the gusheng music sounding oh on yeah. the, as a soundtrack and it was really amazing and i and i I, ne- I met this person the owner he was from hong kong right and yeah he uh, he was living in lima for about 15 years 20 years maybe and and he had these restaurants in the city in the district it was a big restaurant people tend to go there always and i i always knew them and yeah i believe that well then i had this friend when i studied with them um the family were from some province in China. Honestly, I can't remember the name, but I I, I remember it was some from a province. Yeah. The family were just uh, they cultivated, I don't know, but they they I remember him telling me something like that, you not know, talking to me about their grand great grandmother and, and that family, and yeah, that that was more traditional and traditional.
0: Yeah, I know a lot of um, the diaspora from the mainland are from. Uh, Fujian province or Guangdong province but mm-hmm. that's like two out of something like 20 so it's yeah could be from anywhere I guess um right I wanted to keep us moving so I'm gonna sure. do as I said we've got a miscellaneous section um where normally I'd ask guests to give us a, a Chinese word of the day but we're we're doing something special because uh, neither of us are fluent in Chinese and I'm <laughs> yeah so I I've I, we, we've both got a word and I've gone for a. Uh, I, which means era. And that's because whenever I think of the Otsushin or whenever I think of something, I can stick the word era on the end of, I think of the Otsushin that, that comes from, from basically from this story and from three body where humanity is going through crazy eras, like in three body, what is it? The bunker era here. We've got like the, the rocket booster era, the yeah. blah, blah era. And it is just, it just makes me think of the Otsushin. It's totally that big scale all of humanity is involved and everything is about this one big event so I, I don't know to give you an example off the top of my head me and my girlfriend got a hedgehog recently so right now our household has entered the entered the great hedgehog era so yeah should i that's that's where i've got that one and you've got one of your own i've already forgotten how this is pronounced i have the characters in front of me uh i'm going to have to check
1: it again uh my word yeah it's ephemeral, uh, the Chinese translation should be uh, Duan San de." I oh mean- yeah, Duan
0: San, yeah, Duan San de."
1: Yeah, Duan de. Yeah, I really love that word because, you know, ephemeral means uh, transitory, something fleeting, short-lived, momentary. Um, as I told you before, you know, uh, that's something that I always uh, have in mind when reading uh, Liu Xixin's works because it makes us... It, at least as a reader, it makes me believe that or realized at least that this life is really short and the earth is just a rock in the middle of the space going nowhere. And that's it. No, it's it's something that happens to your brain when you're reading Sishin Liu. It is really, really interesting because it makes you, I don't know, it makes you leave your present a little bit more.
0: Yeah, I think that's true.
1: Yeah, I, I always tend to have, grab something like that when I'm reading Leo's works.
0: Yeah, on on this show, I'm always trying to bring up anything existential that I can, and I think it's true. Um, <laughs> the what is it? The basic premise of existentialism: all sort of the values we've received are based on nothing. Nothing yeah. essential has its own essential meaning. Which, if that's your starting point. That's really depressing, but the logical thing to the next logical step is <laughs> yeah. okay. Make your own meaning. Take control of your life, uh, which is difficult, but it's it's happy and uplifting. So it makes a lot of sense that that's the feeling you get. I guess we should also say the word the Spanish the Spanish word for ephemeral. If you taught this one to me, right? Ephemero, if, ephemero, ephemero, right? Ephemero, yeah. like ephemeral, ifimero. Excellent. Now the next one, uh, it's pieces of music. Uh, that we'd pair with this story. I've got one. Do you have one in mind?
1: Yeah, I, I have two actually. Well, obviously Excellent. the first one is uh, the the it's a classical piece from the I don't know how do you how to say it it's the Gymnopédie number one, uh, Eric Satie's Gymnopédie number one. It's called to be uh, one of the saddest pieces of music obviously if you everybody heard that piece of music the gymnopedy uh, number 1 from eric satie And the second one is from a Chinese um, singer. Uh, the way I discovered him was because of, maybe you're aware of this, this YouTuber f- that tends to uh, show the Chinese agricultural stuff like uh, Li Shiki, I believe, I don't know how to say her name. I, I've not come across her. I will, I will send you the link, it's really amazing uh anyway, uh the singer name is Mao Boyi, and then the song is drowning sorrows
0: mao buyi uh Shao drowning ones sorrows is yeah that
1: right? that's yeah uh it's a sad one, but there is a chorus then when they say that they um raise a glass to the future to the moon to all, all that stuff and i really it really resonates with me with this story because again we we talk about the 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 scientists and the future and how the humanity has to survive. But if we have to uh, you know summarize all this, it's about the earth leaving the place where it stayed for a thousand thousand years. (laughs) That's something that for example from the movie I the scene that I really loved more when everybody tends to say goodbye earth or goodbye sun mm. and in different languages, at the beginning from the movie that's something that i really loved
0: yeah the internationalism in the film is an interesting one where the countries never mix but they all sort of get their flags and their little moments and their languages the bit that um (laughs) i kept waiting watching that film for like some kind of interesting international collaboration and you just get the bit when everyone is in their little shuttle cockpits and they've got their Mm -hmm. like flags and it goes through like stereotypes so like the americans are all tired and exhausted the french have surrendered the <laughs> japanese have <laughs> they've yeah, <laughs> impaled yeah. themselves on their swords and then the chinese <laughs> come to save the day it's the united nations version of internationalism um, but mm. yeah thanks for those recommendations i've got one i was a little bit stuck but um while i was working i was listening to like all my music on shuffle and this song i hadn't listened to in years came on and it's it's a weirdly, it's like a very silly cartoony song. So I would say it's not really as high minded as your choices, but I think it kind of captured some stuff from the story. So it, it's a like a prog rock, British pro, modern prog rock band's track. So it's like 10 minutes long. It's called okay. Black Light Machine by a band called Frost. And it starts off with this sense of wonder, kind of magical feeling. And it's the guy talking about how he's just a boy, but he's going to become a real man. And then at the end, the song gets more crazy. And I thought, oh, that's a, actually that's a lot like this this story. So I'm going to edit when I'm editing this. I'll put all of our song choices in. But I'm going to I'm going to crank the volume in my headphones to max and play it through the microphone. Hopefully that you'll, you'll hear. Great. You'll hear it. Here we go. So here's the starting bit. Okay, so that's the, the cheerful opening. And then if I can find the bit where it goes crazy, let me see, I think it's about here. So yeah, not not very dark, but um, I thought it captured some of the energy. You said
1: that it's ten minutes long.
0: Yeah, it's ten minutes long track.
1: What's the name? I I want to
0: listen to it full. Sure, it's called um, "Black Light Machine," and it's by a band called Frost. Frost. Okay. And they're um they're a British band. They're from, in fact, they're English. They're very English. (laughs) The um the (laughs) album cover. I'll just send you the link. You'll see what I'm talking about. Like, you know how, I don't know, Pink Floyd, they're very English. This is a very English band too, I think.
1: Oh, okay. It's got okay. the red telephone <laughs> yeah. box. Yeah, that's really English.
0: Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. So that was our second miscellaneous question. Our last one. Now, this is one I'm going to edit out of the main episode. I'm going to make it <laughs> its own thing for my Patreon just to, so I can okay. give. I've only got like 10 subscribers, but <laughs> I try to keep giving them it's stuff.
1: It's okay. It's great.
0: Yeah um so this is a really stupid question all mm-hmm. of the Chinese sci-fi writers get into a big fight who do you think is going to win uh I guess we've we've analyzed that one as much as we can might have been more interesting to think about all the Chinese authors because like mm-hmm. Mo Yan he's he's kind of heavy if he ran yeah. fast enough he could power through all these sci-fi writers easily um yeah. right, on to our last questions further reading questions. So if listeners are thinking, I'd like to read more stuff like The Wandering Earth, uh, where would you want to send them to?
1: Well, if they haven't read yet Invisible Planets and Broken Stars, that's where I would uh, direct them. I I, I didn't read uh, Broken Stars yet. I didn't have the chance, but because I that's a book that I want to enjoy, you know, I want time to read them because uh, Invisible Planets, at least for me, was a mind-blowing experience. It was the first book I read uh, and it was a book that started me in this, you know, Chinese science fiction genre and it was really, really amazing. After that, I really enjoyed uh, Wasteite, you know, it's a book that, it's um, it's an interesting book, it's, it's, it's chaotic, it's wild and it's also a good You know a proposal that Chen Chen Qifan has, and I really enjoyed it. Those are two books that I uh, I I I recommend.
0: Yeah, you mentioned Invisible Planets and Broken Stars, and I would I would for my recommendations I would basically just second that. Um, And it's a really great case of like you watch the first in a series or you read a first in a series. Now I'll use the example of movies. You watch the first movie and you think, wow, that was great, and then you know there's a sequel. Knowing there's a sequel could mean great. I get the same thing again. It's not over. Fantastic. There's more to enjoy. Or it could be like, oh no, there's a sequel. What if the sequel ruins it? What if it's terrible? And my experience reading Broken Stars is basically you get the same thing again and it's just as good. Okay, But there's a bonus. You get, there's more authors. So it's not just the same authors again. Mm -hmm. You get most, if not all of the same authors, but a lot of them only have one story. So I can, Invisible Planets... Most of the authors have two or three stories under their name. Broken Stars uh, goes for a bit more of a spread. So more authors, less stories for each author. And it goes in different directions. So he gets, there's a story which is like a fusion of historical China, but Mm -hmm. also with sci-fi. And there's like some comedy as well. So it, it goes in other directions yeah. Ken Leo's choices go to places that he didn't go for with uh his invisible planets. So totally one then the if if readers want more, they should I think they should start with invisible planets, then go to broken stars. Is that would be my recommendation. and uh, the next further reading question, uh Cairo, what are you reading just now?
1: Right now I am reading um let me let me grab the book. This one. Oh yes, yeah? the romancer, yeah. I told you before. Uh, this is a new translation from William Gibson's Neuromancer, and I, re- I am rereading it again. And yeah, the translation is different. It feels better, in my opinion. But yeah, it's basically the book that started all right—the cyberpunk genre and and everything.
0: Yeah, I um I have mm. not read that one, so like I had this probably quite particular to someone like me i first learning about chen xiu fan and preparing to interview him and learning about him for my dissertation i saw all this stuff saying he's china's william gibson and i was like who's that who's william gibson (laughs) (laughs) which is probably the reverse from most sci-fi readers but actually it's the ways i've learned about william gibson has mostly been in relation to like chen Mm -hmm. or discussions cyberpunk is a it's an interesting one because it has it's often makes use of um like these dark um
1: the dark themes dark themes and all that's another thing is more like noir sometimes yeah
0: dark themes and noir but using like futuristic sort of asian or yes. asian aesthetic cities as their settings uh, mm-hmm. i recently read a blog post by a guy that went into that um visions of like a east asian future in neuromancer and i learned like neuromancer does some of neuromancer does take place in like tokyo right yeah yeah so that makes me very curious because the, can, the can you send
1: me is, that link later sure please? yeah
0: i'll put it in my show notes it's a guy uh it's a guy who's uh on twitter he's um extremely online i think he's basically just what i used to be he's like a foreigner teaching english in china but he's used it to um right. i don't know he's He's, he's gone a bit further than your average Lawa, your average foreigner, basically. <laughs> um, he goes by the online name Yoshimi, but like he's a white guy. Okay. Um, he's not Japanese.
1: But the- you, you know, uh, the, yeah, you're talking about this, how you didn't read this book yet. It, it reminded me that, you know, the, the first cyberpunk book I read was, you know, waist tight, actually, because uh, I mean, the only science fiction books that i read um before where uh you know the three dystopian novels from the 20th century are you know um George Orwell, charwell 1984 aldous huxley with a uh, mundo feliz um, happy world i believe and then it's uh, ray bradley with fahrenheit 4.1 and those are books then ursula k. Le Guin, oh, and yeah. but then i i didn't read uh, william gibson or k dick Some stories, then Asimov, some stories and foundation, but the truth is that I started enjoying more this kind of science fiction when I started reading the Chinese ones, because I realized this is good. This is really, really good. And as you said, they saying that Chen Fan is like China's William Gibson is a way of telling us this is the you know, the future of all these past authors that we had, we are evolving. The Chinese fiction is always, well, science fiction is always evolving. Mm. And yeah, that's something that I really like.
0: Yep. Uh, here's that link I mentioned. So, right. I don't think it's a it's a perfect blog. It just kind of reads like a guy uh, firing thoughts off the top of his head at points. Um, but it's mm-hmm. it's it's this perspective of a reader uh, reading a romance yeah. or looking for like all sort of examining all of this American author's fixations on Mm -hmm. these Asian places uh, like Hong Kong I think specifically Hong Kong Tokyo and Singapore and the sort of fantasies about this place someone like William Gibson has but I liked it because he's not just trying to scold William Gibson saying like look you stupid American you have all these silly projections of what you want to see on these cities he's saying Mm -hmm. on one hand that is true but on the other hand he was doing something interesting as a writer and there's a good reason that People still look to him as a guy who had an interesting vision. But I think it's also true what you said. The world evolves, sci-fi evolves. And now the idea that the future might Hong Kong is the future seems a bit more questionable now. Um, it might be that Shenzhen or Beijing or Shanghai is a future, or those still might be silly projections of Westerners yeah. who are more interested in the exciting pictures in their head than any kind of reality.
1: Yes, actually, uh, I believe more than in, in Shenzhen, it's more for me the future right now because of, you know, it's like our Chinese Silicon Valley. But the way that the cyberpunk as a genre and, a you know, the key visual it has, it was because of Ridley Scott with Blade Runner. Mm. Um, and then we always copied that until now, until um, you know, Danny Villeneuve came and he reimagined that genre with Blade Runner uh, twenty forty nine. And in that time, for example, you had a cyberpunk with all things gathered; everything was saturated—the rain, the color, the, the 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 neon colors. But now the cyberpunk is going; it's being more minimalistic, mm. uh, white spaces. Um, all that stuff and probably it's going to be more like a solar punk you know more like an example a, a great example of solar punk is wakanda <laughs> what we see in the marvel movies it's a great example but people don't realize that uh, but yeah. yeah that's something that i i I saw watching that that genre evolve
0: yeah i've heard the word solar punk a lot and um so, like on one hand i wouldn't want um so if i had to stay sort of frozen in the 80s on the other hand like you mentioned wakanda there it's a basically a picture of a happy developed wonderful place yeah and to me That's it's it. like i don't want to read about happy places <laughs> i want to read about <laughs> awful things happening to i people. think
1: the same i think the same i i want that same thing you know i yeah. i will always love cyberpunk and the dystopian thing and where everything goes bad
0: yeah yeah yeah, um, I guess that's a not a happy note, but that's a decent note to end uh, end our discussion on. Is there anything else we missed you'd like to get in there before we say goodbye?
1: Um, no, actually, I believe it was all that we wanted to talk about.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, <laughs> extremely comprehensive. So, yeah, thanks. Yeah. For, thanks, Jairo, for
1: coming on. Thanks to you. Thanks for inviting me. And I hope to be back again and talk about more science fiction i will try to read uh, broken broken stars
0: well the, the good the good news there is that's something like at least 12 stories so that's at least 12 episodes yes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i'll look forward to
1: that great thanks for having me
0: all right that is the end of the interview and almost the end of the episode. You may be interested to know that as I read you this outro, I've got a little hedgehog, an African pygmy hedgehog by the name of Millie sitting on my lap wrapped in a little pink blanket. That's the new pet that's entered my life. If you want to see little glimpses of Millie every now and then and keep up with the show, then you can follow the podcast on Instagram. I'm sure I'll find it excuses to include my little include my little tzue, uh Xiaopongyou on on the, the feed, the Instagram stories. So the podcast's handle is at Truchific, T-R-C-H-F-I-C. If you'd like some hedgehog free updates, although no promises, you can follow uh, just my own Twitter. That's what I use for the show and some other stuff, but basically just the show. Uh, it's at Angus Likes Words. If you've not checked out the podcast homepage yet, which I guess is entirely possible, it's a trchfic. You really should go there, all sorts of fun stuff. Speaking of all sorts of fun stuff, goddammit, go sign up to the Patreon, because there's a bonus episode there, well, I've been doing it every week, I might need to slow output down, but regardless, there's like 60 plus bonus shows up there, averaging about half an hour long, and I'm always putting new stuff up. uh, Whether it's talking about uh, books I've read, or a short story, or a film I've watched, or those extensive thoughts I'm going to share on the Taiwan uh, Lit Symposium in Leeds that I attended—it'll all be there, and it'll all be um, fantastic. Of course, it's a lot more freestyle in the show. Um, I tend not to edit, so there's—it's um, much more off the cuff. Angus usually, almost always, just solo. So if that's what you—if you want to hear more of that, it's up there. It's cheap. It's one USD a month. I think you can afford that. He said smugly. Um, Yeah, that's the end of the show. So before I go, most important thing you can do is, of course, to tell your friends, your family, your teacher, and the Japanese wife who inevitably betrays you, even if it was for good reasons, for the benefit of mankind. Tell her as well, of course. And until the next episode, I will say to you, Zaijian.